Yeah, we don't have a code open, but we'll come up with something. Oh, of code. course we will. Of course we will. I'll mispronounce Reed Richards's name, and uh, and you can just throw that in there. Oh my oh. God, Rod Richards. Rod Richards. <laughs> Mister Flematic. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Phantom Agors. God, I can't even say Phantom. I can't say it, Jeff. You know what I'm trying to say? No. What were you saying? The Phantom, the Phantom MacGyvers. What were you no, talking about? Phantasmagorical. Oh, Phantasm, Phantomagorical. Yeah, you should probably yes, just drop that. Yes, I yeah. can't say that word. Yeah, but that that those four with Mister Flematic. <laughs> <laughs> This, this would be great, like the world's hastiest oh analog comic touch. magazine. What's that? Human Touch, because he got his powers from holding on to a Genesis album while getting sprayed oh, with cosmic no. rays. No, no, Graham, stop. stop. This way lies madness. No. That, also, the, what? What's the Genesis album called? The Human Touch? Invisible Touch. Am I getting them? Yeah, mixed? yeah, the Invisible Touch. And then... Oh, my comedy's ruined. Yeah, No, no, it's okay, because honestly, it's comical all the way. I mean, I'm trying to think who's who's at the human touch. We all need the human touch. Is that is that Sheena Sheila E or is it or do I have the wrong song? I don't know. It's, it's we all the, need touch. Human touch. Uh, also, I'm googling human touch. You should. Yeah. <laughs> that, there's almost nothing that can go wrong. Bruce Springsteen. What? Really? Rick Springfield and Bruce Springsteen apparently both did versions of the Human Touch. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, Rick Springfield did a, a 1983 version, and Bruce Springsteen did a 1992 version. That's it. We all need it. The Human Touch. Yeah, that's Rick Springfield, which somehow I've got confused with the glamorous life. We all <laughs> by Sheena, Sheila E, which is <laughs> awesome. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Baxter Building, episode eleven in which Jeff and I are going to be talking about Fantastic Four issues 88 through 94, or, as we were just talking before we started recording, uh, the, eh, they're kind of good, I guess, issues. <laughs> it's it's basically the, the controversy, are they fun but terrible, or terrible but fun? We can't decide. So... I, do, they, do we have to choose? No, no. Why they can be we? fun but terrible, but terrible but fun. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> we that, just that, can't make up our minds, listeners. That that kind of does sum them up. I mean, it's it's. Well, ah. it, here's here's the thing that I was thinking about this morning when I was mm-hmm. thinking this. These issues are miles away from the the high point of the series to date. Yeah. I mean, just light years away. Right. Uh, and in many ways, and I'll get into this later bizarrely close to Kirby's DC stuff. Yes, damn it. Yes. But they're also very fun for what they are. Mm-hmm. If you don't compare, if like, if you don't spend these issues thinking, this is the same team that came up with the Galactus stories and right. uh, with the Surfer and Black Panther and, and this man's monster and just take them on their own terms. Mm-hmm. They're fun. And, and especially the, because there's a, a two-part story in 88 and 89. 
Yes. Then there's a four-part story from 90 to 93, and then there's a one-part story in 94. Yeah. The th- four-part story and the one-part story, I think, are particularly fun. Yes. Especially the one-off at the end. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but you have to get past the, this is the team that revolutionized superhero comics. <laughs> to get there. Well, it it is what what's fascinating to me is is that it's almost like uh, the the thing is is that because the the pacing is totally different, and with the exception of one issue, of course, you've got Joe Sinnott doing the inks. They couldn't feel more dissimilar from say the first dozen issues of the Fantastic Four, but in some ways, they're almost like the first dozen issues of the Fantastic Four. In the sense of their sort of uh, their goofiness, I suppose, and yes. there's and, and, and boy are these some goofy issues. Yeah, they really are, and they're the pacing is really interesting in them. Like I, I don't quite know how Kirby is putting things together, or sort of why he's putting them together the the, the way that they are. Um, it it. it because that, that, for example, that first part of the uh, the four-part scroll story, um, half of that issue is really an epilogue to the two-part storyline that, yes. that came along. Yes. But to be fair, that weird pacing is something that was around in, like, issue 50. Yes, except things happened then, <laughs> you know? I mean, <laughs> that's one of the things that I found so fascinating is, is it's literally 13 or 14 pages of issue 90 that are devoted to the FF, the Mole Man, the whole weirdo house thing, and then the weirdo house gets destroyed. And uh, on the one hand, like you said, there are the, the issues around the 50s, the heyday, really did have an organic kind of like, oh, we're wrapping up the story halfway through. But usually in a way of like the story is literally galloping along, then comes to a, 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 a halt, and then they're off in the next direction, almost in the course of a page. The the first 13 issues, 13 pages of issue 90 are so strangely, uh, I don't know. They're just, they're just leisurely. And, um, it's well, you know, part of the thing is the series by this point has settled into a very comfortable and cozy in the negative connotation of that as in, you know, relatively lazy formula. Right. which has decided that it's all about the characters, therefore the soap opera aspect and the the lack of plot mm-hmm. is is not only permitted, but is preferable. You know, I, I, I would agree with you. And yet this, uh, and this is one of my things where I wonder the extent to which Kirby has more or less shut down. Checked out. Because, well, because there yeah, are I mean, no personal subplots going on in these issues. The closest you can get is maybe arguably, what are we going to call the baby? But like even them checking, no, but, but at the same time, the, the, the aspect of, cause the, the whole, the motivator for the plot of 88 and 89 is reading to have a baby. Now, where are they going to live? Yes. It gets transformed through the the ridiculous. Why don't they live in the abandoned space house that they found in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> but 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 that is the motivator. Yeah, and, and even uh, issue ninety four, the motivator is again the domestic chores of of the Richards family. Mm-hmm. 
who is going to take care of Franklin? You know, so it's so you don't have the subplots being the the, the soap opera, but the the a plots are. Well, it's. it's it's a it's a really weird time for this book. But see, okay, uh, my I'm thinking more of and and perhaps mistakenly, you know, subplots. I'm thinking a little bit of what they become in Marvel later on, which is, you know, long carrying moments of conflict or foreshadowing of conflict to come, you know, <laughs> and. And even if you roll it back where in the mid fifties, where we've got stuff like, you know, you've got Johnny searching for crystal and crystal is, you know, trapped behind the, yeah, the sure. you know, or, or, or the, the, you would cut away every issue for the inhumans for two pages. Exactly. Exactly. Which is a big thing. Like, even though the inhumans really aren't really doing much, you get the sense that they're supposed to be there. And usually there's a way in which sort of shit gets stirred up or even, you know, the silver surfer sort of weaving his way through the issues. All of those things have, um, in in their weird nascent way, they are they are the start starting of of what later becomes sort of the the traditional Marvel subplot. What we're seeing here isn't so much sub subplots. What we are seeing is is we are seeing um, basically stories that are sort of motivated by the characters kind of being proactive. I'll give you that, but there's no, but there's no conflict. The level of like what to name their baby, where the house is going to be. There's, there's no conflict between Johnny and crystal. There's no conflict. Jeff, you've clearly never tried to find a house <laughs> with your partner. That's all conflict. It's all, it's all behind the, the scenes. It's all under the, the surface. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. That, that's all conflict. I know. I totally get what you're saying. I, I, I totally agree. Should we start going through these issues? Yeah, I think so. Let, let's start off with fantastic four. 88 because it's great it really also made me wonder if stanley and jack kirby have ever shopped for a house because uh, uh, a house there was <laughs> after battling dr doom the ff returned to face their deadliest mystery says the splash page it also says further proof of any be needed that stan the man lee and jack king kirby never simply never run out of inspiration that's untrue yes <laughs> honestly this story is proof yeah that they have inspiration also what is wonderful about that splash page, Jeff? Oh, yes. The amazing – even Jeff caught this, then forgot to put it down on his notes. But page one, we see once again somebody with two left appendages. In this case, Mr. Fantastic, who's actually reaching out with his right arm, and yet it's very His clearly, left hand is attached. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, which is such a shame because I love that page otherwise. I really, yeah. really love that page. Yes, it's such a cute, fun page. The Fantastic Four are coming back from their their adventure in Latveria to uh, Alicia, who I want to say her hair might have changed colors. She's holding Franklin, who is not called Franklin yet. Franklin doesn't get named for another few issues. Yes. But they're all so happy to see him. So you get a very happy team with some absolutely beautiful pencils from Kirby and inks from Sinnet. Yes. Johnny and Sue in particular look amazing on that page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Uh, it's very interesting because there's such a, a fine line work on Baby Franklin in a way um, compared to everyone else. N not just on that page, you know, because that page, it really is kind of – it's 
I don't know. It's just, it's smart. It's a smart choice because he looks more delicate than everyone else who has the sort of very heavy reinforced Senate inks, but, um, but it's still kind of, uh, it's still kind of great. Yeah, no, I, um, and of course I love the fact that, that on page two, Ben Grimm is, is refers to Alicia as his sweet patootie, which is how's my little sweet patootie. Which I adore because I really am convinced that to me, one of the things that was interesting about this set of issues and the previous set of issues is how much Ben Grimm is slowly becoming Popeye. Uh, and <laughs> Well, he kind of is. I yeah. mean, ben Grimm at this point has become the lead of the book in, yeah. in, a, in a lot of ways, especially in the next storyline, which is to all intents and purposes a Ben Grimm solo story. It, right. Which, which For, let's, let's not get ahead of that, but yeah, but it, but it is, that's, that's actually one of the things that's, that's great to talk about. So, uh, now I have to ask, did you read this on unlimited or did you read this using the scans on the DVD? You know, I read all of these on, on unlimited first, then I jumped back and perused the letters pages. And in some cases, the bullpen pages, uh, on the scans and then jumped back and read it again on uh, on Unlimited. For those who are following along on the scans, you'll see that on page two of this issue, uh, for no reason whatsoever, Ben is suddenly wearing purple shorts instead of blue shorts. Oh, it's interesting. Because no one else's costume changes color. Right. It does really weirdly. Hmm. You know, it's, it's good look, Ben. It, it I, is. It is. I think he actually should keep with the purple. It. it I think it was better for his coloring. <laughs> really this is great you'll have to you'll have to get a shot of that into the show notes so uh, i'm tempted to to jump over there so yeah it's it's one of those things that's that's relatively you know it's a nice little family reunion sequence it helps that reed doesn't actually become a dick until page three which is like a new record for him i do have to say as no, much as i enjoy these issues page three is not insane no no it's six page three is essentially hey human torch do you mind not almost setting my kid on fire? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I'm just like, if one spark hicks his blanket, I'm like, meh, meh. You no, know. I, I get that your intense dislike of Reed Richards. Oh, which only it's, ramps up during this. It, there are so many points in this issues where oh, I just yeah, wrote things in all caps in my notes because <laughs> – I hate you, Rod Ricard. <laughs> Rod Ricard of the Phantomagorical Four. <laughs> oh man. Um, okay, so we go from these this very pleasant scene of urban suburbanness mm-hmm. of the all-American family unit, which just so happens to include a rock man and an inhuman, to a guy wandering out in the middle of the street because he's blind. That's right. That's right. Barely. Uh, b- more or less getting uh, – it's arguable whether he gets hit or he manages to leap out of the way. But, of course, he – Well, don't stand. He leaps out of the way, but – Yeah, but you've got yeah. impact lines and stuff. And admittedly, he spends a lot more time seeming more upset over the fact that he has suddenly gone blind while walking his dog over there in the woods. And then uh, he points out – this, and this is the thing which I think is both helpful and strange uh, in that he – that Stan's uh, info dump includes uh, that, A, the guy's eyesight is slowly returning and that other people around the area have reported, quote, unquote, the same thing, a.k.a. suddenly going blind. Um, 
So on the one hand, people are alarmed. But on the other hand, if you think about it, maybe kind of blasé about it. So Exactly. They're alarmed. And yeah, not alarmed for anyone to be like, let's not let anyone near there. Never mind the Fantastic Four move in. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which is what we more or less see happening on page five. Actually, I take that but back. Be, this is before, not – yeah, this is before the Before we move on, though, I want to say mm-hmm. this is a really, really, really rare occasion of Kirby and Lee – being in sync in terms of actually foreshadowing what happens in this issue. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude no. going blind mm-hmm. is not a random happenstance. <laughs> Which, well, that's generally the way that these stories have worked. Mm-hmm. Because Kirby, bless him, is not really a forward planner. Mm-hmm. So having legitimate foreshadowing is not something that Fantastic Four does. Yes. And, and having this guy wander out and say, I've gone blind, and then... He doesn't say it, but it's heavily implied. When I get away from the building, I can see again. Yeah. Is genuinely foreshadowing what happens later in the issue. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it it is interesting. I mean, again, it's in some cases, I wonder the extent to which, again, the, the pacing on this issue is weird. Because it's like, you've got that. That's fine. I was going to say that page five has the FF starting to move out into the house. But it's actually just everyone going... And touring the house, yeah, yes. to get an idea that they're going to buy it, and yes. um, it seems like it, it. It seems so technically unnecessary in a way. I mean, you know, yeah, because well, especially because Sue has already been there. Yes, and we've we've already seen her little tour. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've toured it and I really like it. And having Reed say, "Well, if you like it, I'm sure it's fine." Seems really odd, especially given that it then very quickly rushes to, and then they move in. Right. Yeah, it's very strange. It's very strange. There's also something that I I adore from Kirby that is very odd, but I I deeply deeply adore uh, pages six and seven in this issue. In the, the flip splash. Yeah, the flip splash, which is kind of great. The greatest thing. Yeah. To to explain for people who are not who don't have a copy of this issue in front of them, page six is a great splash page of all of the FF in civilian clothes as they walk towards the the building. Mm-hmm. And then in page seven, you get another splash, which is from the reverse of them walking inside the building. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it is as if, if this were a movie, they basically walked past the camera and the camera pans to follow them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And having both of those as splashes mm-hmm. is weirdly effective. Yeah, it really is. And it, it's also stuff that I really... Uh, there's a lot of things that I appreciate in it. Like... Uh, one thing that always stuck with me is uh, is, a, is an interview, I think, in the Comics Journal with uh, the Hernandez brothers from, you know, a bajillion years ago. And I don't remember if it was Jaime or Gilbert or both, but they were talking about how much they had an appreciation for Jack Kirby. The And part of it is the body language of his characters and also the way the characters dress. And I definitely remember in the Comics Journal... It was the it was the uh, panel from the Avengers where Tony Stark meets um, Wanda and Pietro at the airport or something, and the way they've got the the way that Tony Stark has his suit and the way that Quicksilver is holding his his hat. Um, I do love the way that everyone is is dressed here, and I love that once you flip to page seven, you see that there's this weird unifying H pattern. On both Johnny and Crystal, 
SPAC that ties them together visually and sort of makes me anyway realize that that both um, Sue and Reed have you know sort of matching kind of trench coat style fashion. Yeah. So yeah. you know Kirby's actually paired off the couples appropriately and in an entirely visual way. It's kind of wonderful. It, it Kirby has again how much of this is conscious and planned mm-hmm. versus Kirby just instinctively knowing to do this. Yes, but the visual signifiers for which characters belong together mm-hmm. is is amazing. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting. Page seven, as you see them walking towards the building mm-hmm. or into the building, really. Yeah, that he's staged that. Uh, in such a way that he has kept the characters together and that the one character who is not in the building mm-hmm. is, is the thing, mm-hmm. belongs alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is again, just, I mean, it's great, but it's one of the things that I, I really like is even this far into it, even in an issue that's a little bit flaky, um, I'm not entirely sure about Sue and Crystal, but there are between Reed stretching on page one and Johnny doing his little flame bit on page three. And I think there's something that Ben goes on to do like Kirby is still introducing, you know, even 88 issues in he's visually introducing these characters. He's giving you Mm -hmm. clues. It's, it's really, um, you know, it's, it's not. And, and of course, Stan, definitely makes a point to explain everything as well. So you, you really get a point of, of who these characters are in, in, in visual ways and visual cues that, that make it a perfectly fine sort of jumping on point. That being said, I'm still amused that page eight has Johnny deciding to test the house by shooting it with a flame blast. (laughs) While after saying, don't worry, I'm going to be totally careful about this thing. And it's just like, well, I also, the reason Johnny flames on is literally Ben says, we don't know if your clothes are flame proof. (laughs) Johnny goes, that's right. This is as good a time as any to really test it out. Yeah. Really? What if it wasn't flame proof, Johnny? What then? Yeah, I, it, it is fascinating. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a couple of points where it really seems as if re, uh, Stan Lee has forgotten about the unstable molecules because there's a lot of references to chemically treated clothing uh, in, in these issues where I'm just like, dude, they're unstable molecules. You know, I don't I don't see why you have to have to bother with it. But again, so. that's us reading as fans who grew up with this shit. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I, I just love the idea that, that Stan himself and, – and honestly, believe me, one of the things that you take away from, from me that I took away from 88 through 94 is um, St- Stanley and Jack Kirby w- – Kirby may not be plugged in. Stanley clearly has too much on his plate because yes. there is – only so much struggling to keep it up. Yeah, he. Ooh, well put. Uh, yeah, he. He. He is. He is definitely. There's miscues. There's mistakes that pop up all over the place, and there's times he hasn't. He hasn't gotten anyone's name wrong in the issues, at least that I noticed. But uh, so but, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what happens in the middle of the section. They go into the building because this, for me, is uh, Stan dropping the ball. Mm-hmm. They go in to see the building. Yes. And immediately 
Ben and Reed both suggest that it's not a good place. Mm-hmm. Ben says, I'm getting nauseous just looking at it. And Reed yes. says, there's a low persistent hum which never seems to stop. It makes her think my head is throbbing so. Yeah. Which would be great if the next time you see them, they weren't moving into the building. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very it strange. Like from that scene. Mm-hmm. Well, with a one-page interlude of a message gets sent to the mysterious owner of the house that the Fantastic Four are there. Yeah. But it, with the exception of that, it cuts from that scene to Ben at the eye doctor mm-hmm. saying that he's having trouble with his eyes. And then he goes back and they're all moving from the Baxter building into the house. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very strange for me that Stan chooses to really dramatically play up there's something wrong with this house. And then just go straight into, and then they move in. Well, I mean, so, so right. Which I think is one of those things that's uh, uh, a little problematic, you know, in the sense of, I believe that he is, again, he's following Kirby's cues and Kirby definitely shows them being distraught. I suppose, you know, you've got, you've got Reed sort of rubbing his head. Um, and, and, and Stan extrapolates from this stuff. There's only so much he can do. He can't turn around and be like, hey, Jack, you're going to have to redraw the next 15 no, no, pages but, but of this. but he can. So, so that is on page, what, nine? Yeah. Yeah, page nine, you see that. Mm-hmm. And the next time you see Reed is page 14. And you could literally just have Reed have a line of dialogue where he says something like, I'm sure glad you talked me into moving or yes. something. Yeah. You know, something to acknowledge that he did have misgivings. I mean, serious misgivings. If I went to a house and I was like, there's a weird noise that's giving me a headache. Right. You would have to talk me into moving there. I wouldn't just be like, you're right, let's take it. Well, you know, but this is one of the things that I think is fascinating to me is how issues 88 and 89 are a little bit of a mirror of what's happening with issue 94. But it's almost like it's too subtle. You know, it is very much... The opening of this is a, is a haunted house story, you know, and it's very, very traditional uh, in the haunted house stories that you've got the family that shows up at the house. There's something wrong. They all feel the foreboding and then they move in anyway. Like it's, you know, I, I'm thinking of, of, well, God, I guess, you know, burnt offerings is sort of the classic example uh, of the you know the haunted but even even the amityville horror you know the original um you know supposedly non-fiction book you know although the ff have bajillions of dollars and in theory you know could construct whatever the hell they wanted um kirby is playing off of the idea that they are moving into a haunted house and and usually it's that classic case of the family feels the squeeze like it's a um you know for me one of the things that struck me is is this comes out you know i think the publication date on it is like july of 69 so which means that it actually came out three issues earlier but you know, who knows how long it was kind of cooking. 68 is when Kirby and his family moved to California. So within a year of him relocating, I think it's really interesting that you get a story where the Fantastic Four, you know, themselves relocate. And the classic 
new house anxiety that, that, that you were talking about a little bit before we officially started recording, you know, of like, Oh God, is this, is this place right for me? No, it's wrong. I've got misgivings. And then, you know, most people turn around and they, they figure out they're going to make it work and they get the house, you know? So that part is kind of missing that little bit of stickiness. Um, and I don't, I don't really know how in that sense, Stan could have reconciled it. I'm not even sure that he needs to reconcile it as much as he needs to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not as if we ever see Reed be happy with the house. Right. You literally get two panels of Reed mm-hmm. between, I'm not sure about this, I have a headache, and the house is literally trying to kill me. <laughs> because, spoilers everyone, that's what happens. He tries to drill a hole in a wall, and in doing so, the house starts shooting at him, then traps him in a bell jar, a plastic bell jar. Yeah. Which he escaped from by going paper thin. For some reason, I always love it when that's the excuse. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've tried to trap me, but I can go in so thin, I can squeeze out under. <laughs> it, there's nothing more fantastic, for want of a better way of putting it about that than he could stretch in the first place. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, there's always something about, I can stretch myself so thin I can get out of anything. Yeah. Always weirdly triggers my, really? <laughs> I could not tell you why. I genuinely couldn't tell you why. But, uh, but I, I always kind of love it when I do it because it always seems like, uh, we, yeah, we're not, you know, whatever. Yeah, totally. You know, we're we're not really going to make a big thing out of this. It's just sure he he gets out because he's really thin, right? Well, uh, yeah, I I think that there's a lot going on here with Kirby. Where, you know, I love Kirby, but he is a ridiculous cheat, and and it's just one more cheat. I mean, it's a bell jar. It's clearly designed to make the sure that there's no room between the floor and the glass. And then, and then he has Reed do it anyway. You know, um, what I love is of course, is that Reed being Reed and me being the person who does not like Reed, his first response is, how am I going to lie to Sue about this? Which I just think is hilarious. The whole, like, she says, Oh my darling, what, what happened to you? And he's like, it's all right, dear. It was just, an accident. Now he does actually turn around and come clean about what happened, sort sort of. So I, I can't really. Does he, he kind of? Well, no, he does. He says he triggered a security system and uh, he set off some booby traps. Also, I set off some booby traps, but not. The house started shooting at me, and then tried to drop me in a bell jar. Well, I mean, come on. Let's face. Uh, maybe it's just me, but okay. Shooting is serious, but. If if a bell jar dropped on my head while I was, like, checking out a new house, I would not be like, we have to leave. We have to leave right now. You know what I mean? Like, it's a fucking bell jar. Like, Oh, God. Uh, listeners, never go house hunting with Jeff. Or alternatively, HGTV, if you're listening, please send Jeff and Edie on the world's greatest episode of House Hunters International. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The episode, the, the miniseries called Sure, Why Not? In which Jeff basically makes the case for any number of completely inhospitable dives. Yeah, yeah you know, the, so there's ways in which I love, I mean, there's, the, I want to jump back because, of course, Reed getting killed is, 
you know, uh, something to root for always, but yeah, exactly. But I do love, cause I, I, much like Reed Richards, I'm usually uh, making a point to bag on Stanley, and I have to say that on page 11, the points where um, the doctor actually makes a joke, uh, you know, at, at one point when Ben Grimm's like, can you imagine how a guy like me would look if I had to go around wearing goggles? And the doctor says, you could always have them tinted, and then no one would recognize you. And I just, it's just so, there's, there's... Lee's got some witty dialogue up his sleeve. The very next panel has thing walking out and he's squeezing past the nurse in the door. And he says, and you better get wider doors or skinnier nurses. Like that is, that is definitely. It's, it's but okay. It's funnier than you could always have them tinted and then no one would recognize you. But if you're holding the get wider doors or skinnier nurses up as a, a good laugh line. <laughs> You might be wrong, Jeff. I don't uh, – well, OK. So the first one I thought was funny because you've got a character who looks completely, you know, like a dullard essentially, an eye doctor that you're not expecting to have a lot of personality. So Stan throwing it in there is great. And then although I don't think that, you know, and you better get wider doors or skinnier nurses is exactly the height. I mean it is a – it's a throwaway hee-haw line. It does sort of cover a certain it, – it conveys a certain amount of personality. I, I suppose the idea that, that Ben Grimm and this the Baxter Building's eye doctor are in good enough terms to sort of joke around. Not that there's just one joke, but there's kind of two – suggests yeah, a relationship it, that's there. What's that? Yeah, it's banter. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I'm a little more annoyed that that, uh, the nurses, you know, Stan has nurse saying that people from all over this area have been complaining about their eyes hurting and impaired vision. Not not only that, the doctor says he doesn't know that some of the other FF members have also been to see me. Yes. You're that eye doctor. And all of a sudden, let's just say that even three of the Fantastic Four have come to you all at the same time, all out of nowhere – and had impaired vision. Yeah. You wouldn't think maybe something's going on and I should tell them? Yeah, no, I know. It's it's just that classic said, idea. I only of... wish I knew, he says. <laughs> Not <laughs> unlike the other members of the Fantastic Four that I'm holding important information back from. I'm sure they also wish they knew what I'm not telling them. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> even though I jumped over it before, I want to say that I do like on page 12 to, again... Give Stan some props. Yeah. He refrains from explaining what Ben is doing with the the yes. special belt buckle that lets him into the Fantastic Four's private elevator. Because that is a scene that even 10 issues ago, you know that the dialogue would have been him explaining what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It's, it's great. And again, it's the sort of thing that um, – I don't know. I, 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 li- I like that page. I like the next page. It's sort of – it's kind of classic Lee Kirby Fantastic Four. You know, there's but, – But again, nothing is really happening in these pages. No. Pages 12 and 13 are, are filler, are amazingly filler. Yeah. The thing gets into an elevator, rides an elevator up. That is page 12. Yes. I'm not exaggerating. No, 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 no. That and is filler. Page 13, yeah. Mm-hmm. He is bantering with a mover yeah. before lifting up some crates to show that he's strong. Okay. Well, see, again, at least you've got that. That This is the part where I'm like, okay, so you're 13 pages in. 
you do know what our three male heroes can do, certainly. I, I totally see what you're saying in terms of you, Chris and, and Sue are, are very much uh, in the background yeah. in terms of being heroes, in terms of having powers. But that seems weirdly appropriate for the story, mm-hmm. which only treats them as love interests. Yes. The male heroes. Right. This is not a story in which Sue or Crystal have any agency. Mm-hmm. Sue's mm-hmm. main thing is to talk Reed into buying the killer house. Yes. And then by the end of the issue, go blind. Yeah. Crystal, meanwhile, her entire thing in this issue is to be Johnny's girlfriend. Yes. Yeah, and be excited about staying for dinner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if it's as good as all your other meals, we may never leave. Yeah, uh, that's on page sixteen. On, on page seventeen. On page sixteen, <laughs> there's a wonderful line of dialogue, which proves that both Jack and Stan did not give a fuck. Yes. Where's Benjamin? Says Sue. He stayed behind with Alicia. Says Crystal. That way they can mind the baby together. Which means, listeners. Ben is not at the house. That's important because at the opener of next issue, Ben has suddenly appeared at the house. Yes. Yeah. It was again. It's, it's that classic. Like I know that the only, I feel that like Stan, I almost said Reed, which is great. The transference is complete. Stan looked through these pages was like, okay, the thing is nowhere to be seen. I'm going to, I'm just going to say that he's at home or maybe he checked with Kirby or whatever. I think frankly looked at him was, but for whatever reason, rather than saying like, oh, he's on his way behind us because of blah, blah, blah. They're just like, no, he's staying back. And then again, the charm of in 89, there he is. And not even usually that'd be the sort of oopsie that Stan would try to uh, explain yeah, after no, the fact badly. No, no, no. Yeah. Not in the slightest. Yeah. yeah. It's great. So, yeah. so yeah, this whole issue really does have not much happen. Like there is apart from like Reed basically almost getting killed with a bell jar. Let's do the last three pages, which are, are, like actually, are the are the plot? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, turns out that the house has been built by the mole man. Remember the mole man? <laughs> we literally haven't seen him for eighty-seven issues, but he's back. Yeah, he's back, everyone, and he's back literally to build a house that get this will make everyone blind. And there you go. Um, yeah. Thankfully, that happens during a dinner where. Just to prove what we were saying before, Crystal and Sue are both wearing aprons and serving Reed and Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) Hot buns, Johnny, says Crystal. Say, Chris, I never knew you were so domestic, says Johnny. Careful, son. That's how your sister hooped me, said Reed. And that sound you hear is that comic being metaphorically lit on fire (laughs) by many, many people across the world. (laughs) Oh my god, it's terrible, but is made a lot better. Just two panels later, when Sue, out of nowhere, suddenly keels over by screaming, My eyes, I can't see. Yes. Reed then says, Sue, what is it? Reed, she just told you. Yes, yes. She literally just said. Anyway, then all of the team go blind. Yeah. Leading to the third panel on page 20. All of them... <laughs> 
looking out at nothing because they're all going blind, and it is amazing. I, well, I, of course, deeply adore – because, okay, Sue, basically, panel two, my eyes, I can't see. Panel three, read Johnny Crystal, where are you all? Here's the response from her devoted husband. Right here, honey, get a grip on yourself. Whatever it is, it's happening to all of us, which is really great. You're not special, Sue. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Shut just up. I'm going blind, too. Tone it down. For God's sakes, all right? We're all here at the dinner table. We're all blind. There's nothing special about you, Sue. For Christ's sakes. Yeah, he... Husband of the year. <laughs> he really is. Everything about him just drives me. But that that will, is nothing compared to some of the stuff that happens next issue. Now, for those people, uh, Graham, you may remember in the past, I talked about uh, Carter Schultz, the uh, comics journal essayist and science fiction writer who turns in a letter talking of trying to explain genetic mutation to Stan Lee. Um, and it's great because, of course, his suggestion for... Uh, what the baby should be called is Keith. Um, sadly, he's the only person who seems to really get how funny it would be to have their child called Keith Richards. Uh, that is in the letter pages for this issue. If you have, it's, if you have a chance, also to I think for those who are reading in the uh, the scans from the DVD, I hope everyone caught the bullpen bulletins finest item ever, which I don't think has ever been improved upon. <laughs> item. It suddenly occurred to us to take a totally useless survey of how many of our bullpen bigwigs are sporting beards these days. Oh, that is so good. Oh, my God. We realized that almost a cool 10% are fuzz faces. Want to know who? We thought you'd never ask. Really? Did you think that people would never ask who's got a beard in the bullpen stand? Really? I'm stunned. Well, you said... Before they can rush to a razor, here they are. Smiling Stan Lee, Rasley Roy Thomas, Jumbo John for Burton, Jim Madman Mooney, Awesome Arnie Drake, Nefarious Neil Adams, and stalwart Stan G. Groovy Gary Friedrich and Jotty Jim Starango used to sport some facial shrubbery themselves, but they're now almost aggressively clean-shaven. Think they're trying to tell us something? Yes, Stan. They're trying to tell you that you desperately are filling space in an embarrassing manner. And you have to stop. If it makes you feel better, I, I, I am. I feel I'm ninety percent certain that that is Roy Thomas. That there's a point at which Roy is writing all of everything that's not <laughs> Stan Soapbox. What's that? It doesn't make me feel better, Jeff. <laughs> Let's move on to issue eighty nine, Graham. The madness of the mole man. No. The Fabulous Fantastic Four in a world of blindness must face the madness of the moment. You know, I love the fact that... I should say that, not moment. It's not one word. (laughs) That's true. That is true. Um, Madness of the moment. The the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, The man with the mole. Bill and Ethel moment just down the road. Yes. In that weird house that gives me headaches every time I walk past. <laughs> so again, something kind of great from Kirby in terms of his approach. Uh, again, some people may call it vamping. I feel that it's actually Kirby just doing something cool, which is the oh, it's, first it's, his opening. His first three pages are great. I I adore them because it starts off with a splash page of the eerie mushroom house glowing. Well, glowing is understating it because, of course, in Kirby style, it, it is it is firing off rays like you know like an angel in a, in a Renaissance painting. And then you've got a wonderful page two is a, what looks like a tracking shot into the house along all of the day, 
the debris until you finally get to uh, page three, which is a wonderful off-kilter shot of the Mole Man sticking it to the man and the man being Reed Richards at this point. As everyone sort of flops around um, uh, blindly. Course. Yes, who has popped up? So um, I I adore that little transition, and I also think it's an it's a really interesting that splash page on page three is so gorgeous. I mean, keep in mind this is I think issue eighty nine has something like four or five full page shots from Kirby, you know, yes. in like sixteen yes. pages or something. So. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of that kind of issue, but it really allows, it's kind of great seeing Kirby kind of pacing it like, eh, I'm going to do what I want to do, which is basically, okay, now I'm going to have the, the mole man beat the shit out of the fantastic four, which are blind while Stan Lee is like, how can I fuck up the storytelling? There's gotta be a way. Oh wait, I'll have Reed Richards who is also blind. Tell everyone what's happening and, or warn them about things that he can't possibly know about. But to be fair, he's been doing that for a really long time. We'll see that too. Reed is the king of, (laughs) I have no way to know this, but thankfully Stan Lee sent me a message. (laughs) Exactly. My little Stanogram. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them that are great, but I don't want to jump too far ahead. Um, There's some great stuff. uh, First of all, the idea that they're having this superpowered fight when none of them can see. Yes, and it is not going worse than it goes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing, especially when the human torch is flying around on fire. Yes, yeah, and apparently that like the worst he does is that he falls into the ground. Yeah, that also leads to on page five, the Moman is about to hit the human torch, mm-hmm. and Crystal manages to shout, "No, no, you mustn't!" Even though, how would she know that that was going to happen? Exactly, exactly. There's so much in this where Stan is. Just, again, he's in such a hurry, he's kind of not paying attention, even as he's reinforcing the idea that people are blind. Um, he, yeah, he has people reacting all the time to things that they cannot see. Now, let's, I, I want to talk about issue pages six and seven, because the great thing is because there is no fistfights with blind people who are nonetheless yelling out directions to one another. Um, you have a Kirby collage on page six and on page seven, you have, which is great. You've got a full page splash on page six, followed by a full page splash on page eight. But between them, you get a mysterious, it's Kirby trying to be mysterious with a pair of hands, um, in a, Do doing various things in a spaceship, yes. exactly, before we get the reveal of who it is on page eight. And I just want to say that though that, that page is just fucking fabulous if you oh, love it's Kirby. It, and Kirby machinery. In yeah. Oh, my uh, God. It's good to see also that the third panel on page seven, Kirby invents a 3D printer. That's right. Yeah. It, it has them, and it actually looks a lot like uh, some of the 3D printers. Kind of great. So... Every every panel of that one, I think, is is a winner. You've got and, and again, know. it's very cinematic in terms of the story. Yes, yeah, yeah, you yeah, get yeah. The establishing shots. Then you get the expositionary visuals. I guess yes, they want to put it because mm-hmm. you know Stan has the, the the scroll doing a monologue at the time, but the monologue is not actually telling you as much as the visuals are. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then it cuts to the full page splash of the scroll's face. 
Skrulls who do not have the most consistent design. For yes. Kirby. Yeah. And not because they're shapeshifters, just because it's Kirby, and he can't quite remember what the Skrulls look like. Yeah. But it's a great page. Oh, it's so good. Sinnet's inks are bold as shit on it. Yeah. Yeah. It really works. Also, I love the scroll bling. Yes, the scroll bling is the best. We not only have a scroll, we have a scroll who is literally wearing a gold chain around his neck, and it is awesome. I mean, it's it's intriguing to me because of it is. Uh, God bless him again. It tells the story visually. Kirby is throwing that in. It's scroll bling and it's glorious, but it also does point to what the scroll is here for you know um it is interesting to me it's just fascinating to me the the idea that i mean we've we've got the mole man you know in in these two issues 84 and uh eight sorry 88 and 89 which is the, the villain of of ff1 and then you've got a scroll the villain of ff2 following hot on his heels mm-hmm. um and in both cases at least for me, I almost feel like Kirby is revisiting them to as much as much to draw them. Like there's a lot of shots of, of the mole man in this issue and in next issue where he's drawn with his glasses, without his glasses, you know, close up far away. Um, and this, to me, this shot of, of the scroll where you basically see Kirby take his, crazy desire for um, design detail and actually apply it to an alien, even an alien that we have before. It's really surprising and his, wonderful. His design for the scroll here is actually gorgeous. And I yeah. wish it was the design that, that continued going forward yes. because he not only plays with the ridge chin, which mm-hmm. becomes the scroll's main uh, visual signifier. Yeah. But he then mirrors that with what he does on the nose yes. and what he does with the eyebrows. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and also the massive eyes that he gives the scroll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's super, super exciting. Yeah. Look at it. it it's, it's something again that makes the scroll seem other yeah. in a way that later versions of the scrolls will not have they will mm-hmm. look more human except they'll be green and they'll have bigger chins yeah exactly they they end up turning into sort of your standard almost star trek next gen design and here like you said the scroll is other in a way that is is really glorious so um sadly the rest of the issue is not about scroll because we then flash back yes the mole man who helpfully tells the ff what he's up to yeah. The house is a test object, mm-hmm. uh, a proof of concept that he can create a machine that will turn people blind. He will then build a bigger machine that will turn more people blind. And then when they're blind, his moloids will then take over. Here's my question, Jeff, and I actually didn't research this, hoping you would know it. When was the day of the Triffid written? Uh, back in the 50s, I want to say, in Britain. Because this is the plot of the Day of the Triffids. It is. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Make mankind blind, and then they're, they're, it's able... And then you take over. 51. Yeah. I've just looked it up. Yeah. Hey, I was close. So, we're in, in the right ballpark. So, yes, this is, this, is, this is, once again, sort of Kirby drawing on his knowledge of science fiction. Uh, I, I would say that... That storyline is as well. Yes. In, in, 
a jaw-dropping way. Oh yeah, that that next one is kind of. I, I think that it's it's well, we'll get there. But yeah. yes, so it is Day of the Triffids. Then you go back to uh, one of my favorite pages, which is which is page eleven, which has Ben basically getting fed up and jumping the mole man, uh, at least in the way that Kirby plots it, and then of course. Uh, Stan, being Stan, has turned it into, here's Reed telling Thing what to do and then being a complete dick by saying, look out, his staff has a vibro charge in it too late so that panel four shows the, <laughs> the thing. It's the funniest thing. You basically have, thanks to Stan, Reed's telling Ben <laughs> to rush him yeah. and then be like, oh, don't rush him. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it, Ben. Rush him. Oh, no, wait, but look out for his vibro staff, which again, part of it is like, Reed, how would you fucking know? And B, why didn't you tell him beforehand, you oh God, enormous you penis? Just... He is just, uh... Just ben Carson. <laughs> <laughs> He's telling everyone to rush. <laughs> oh, someone should ask Reed Richards what he feels about the, the pyramids. Oh, man, you know that Although... he would have a story. He would, because his story would be like, well, I've met Ramatot. <laughs> I can tell you. Reed Richards is president. Why has no one ever done that? Oh, my story? God. That would be the best story, where he goes, and then just the shit that he's saying is just so insane and crazy. But and also, but you as a reader know it's true, because he's done it. Yes, exactly. But none of the media can really quite believe him. Like, oh, although we know. And then the worst part is you can actually have Reed act like Stanley, Reed Richards, and just be terrible to people. And then in true form, the media is like, he's a leader. <laughs> oh, don't be so great because you can imagine the attack ads. Yo, yeah. <laughs> he says he saved the planet, but can we trust Reed Richards? What sort of man invents molecules that are unstable? <laughs> How can oh a God, person like who now. creates a negative zone expect to be positive about the greatest country on Earth? You know? Marvel, please, come on. <laughs> <laughs> this story has to be done. This story that this story must be told. To be told. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, let's finish this issue because it's, it's not worth it. Um, no, no. It, it, so it, the rest of this issue is, as you might expect, the FF foiling the Mole Man's plan. How they file the Mole Man's plan is great, though. Yes. Because how they file the Mole Man's plan is that Sue finally gets to do it. Yeah, well, although, as, yeah. As much as Stan really tries to make it read... Yes, he does, yeah. which is amazing. He really, really does. Yeah. It's clearly so. The way she does it is hilarious. Okay, before you get to it, I just have to say, because there's so many pages where I was just like... Ah, and I know it gets old. It's like kick, kicking a, a baby or something. But page twelve, where where Reed, where Stan has Reed signaling. It's at one point the mole man's like, "Wait, Richards, what are you doing? Whom are you signaling to?" And Reed says, "That's for you to find out, Mister." And of course, it ends up being Sue. But she's blind. How could she exactly. see the signal? Are like signaling. Stan no. is just. Oh my God! There's there's one of these. One of my notes is literally written in all caps it says you were blind reed how could you do that reed how that is literally how pissed off i was getting but yes sue ends up basically being the person who grabs a mole man's glasses and fucks his shit up and can we talk about how great it is 
and I, I mean great in a sarcastic sense, that the mole man is beaten by throwing his glasses away? Yeah, yeah. Is that not some weird, like, Freudian bully shit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, there, there is a real... Like, really, the mole man is a fascinating character yeah. in this time. The mole man, let's, let us not forget, is the supervillain who became a supervillain because a woman wouldn't go on a date with him. And now he's defeated by, by a woman throwing his glasses away. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's I, true. I'd love to blame all of this on Stan, but come on. No, Jack. no, no. Yeah, yeah. It's, exactly. It is Kirby building in there. And in fact, one of the things I do find interesting is, is I don't necessarily see it as a uh, something that, that Kirby had baked into the plot. But I do find it fascinating. Lee very specifically has points um, it's one it, when Sue loses her shit on the mole man, he basically blames Reed Richards and says it was his fault. He tried to seize the staff. And then later on, well, the, his fault in particular is that he is shot Reed Richards. Yes. Sorry. So uh, later on, on page 17, he's basically like, no, you've no right to be so angry. All I wanted was justice for justice for myself and my loyal legions. It was mankind who drove me beneath the surface. Mankind who made me an outcast. Um, I just wanted to walk on the surface again to see the dawn come up, to feel the warmth of the sun. You can't condemn me for that. And, what is interesting, because Stan really is building this in, I feel, it, since it's largely in the dialogue, uh, is a lot of them basically saying to the mole man, hey, you are being – you're basically playing a victim. You know, ben, well, He actually says on page 14, I'm not to blame. I've never been to blame. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So not not really subtle, but kind of fascinating the extent to which – Stan, I think, trying to figure out some sort of way to kind of get an emotional anchor on this kind of all over the place story, um, comes up with with the mole man's excuses and with him being confronted. I mean, again, it is it's a very strange. You not only have him, you know, be beaten by a woman who throws his glasses off, but then you have Johnny, who is the most conventionally handsome, virile, and least outcasty member of the FF, um, basically... Shame him. Yeah, shame him. So there's a... Ben Grimm had a problem, a lot bigger than yours, but he faced it like a man. Yeah. Even Alicia, a girl not as lucky as you because she's totally blind. <laughs> That's such a wonderfully dick line. Um, <laughs> managed to take on the world and come up a winner, but you live on hate and blaming others for whatever's bugging you. If pity's your bag, you won't find it here. Yeah. What is hilarious in that in particular is if pity's your bag kind of defines a lot of the Fantastic Four up until this point. Especially yes. then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's very funny that you have Stan through Johnny paint all of the heroes as they took their lumps. Yeah. Because... That's not actually what you've seen in the series up until this point. No, absolutely. In fact, you you see ridiculous amounts of of bathos on everyone's part, and certainly Johnny's during that period where he's searching for a crystal and is inconsolable. You know, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it 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 is sort of 
don't know. I mean, it's kind of hypocritical. Part of me is like, uh, at least Stan's trying to get something going on. Similarly, on page 19, we have a situation where Reed is not breathing at all. And uh, I don't think that this is in Kirby's pencils, you know, but Stan basically has uh, Ben being like, no, no, no. Um, this may be the one time my blasted strength will really pay off. Ain't nobody can give artificial respiration for as long as I can or with as much steady pressure. And so the next two panels, even though it could be Ben doing anything, he is technically, um, you know, it's a bit of a gambit. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's kind of fascinating because if you look at the art, it looks more like Reed is picked up by Ben and then yes. put down by him because yes. he's dead. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, there's kind of and, a mourning there. Yeah, and you have Stan completely take that in a different direction with the dialogue. Yes. He yeah. even adds in a break in time with the caption in the third panel. Yes. Death, seconds, turns, minutes, and drag desperately, dramatically on. Yeah. Which is is a a, a really interesting place to go mm-hmm. with that sequence. Yeah. And, and I don't know what purpose it serves, I guess. I think he felt that it was a little bit cliche of the, oh, we lost him, we're mourning over him, and then he stirs and is all right. You know, for no sort of real appreciable reason. So, you know, I I, I think it's kind of it, it's one of those times where I'm like, I I I backstand on this choice. I think it kind of works well. It's the he's always trying to jamming stuff into the corners to make the the heroes seem more heroic and more active than they are. And it's one of the cheats that that I feel basically works because otherwise you're left with a cliche and you're also left. I mean, it could very well be that Stan just didn't want to write a, Oh no, we lost him. He was the greatest guy ever, you know, and now he's gone page, mm-hmm. which he, a, he's written enough of along, you know, and <laughs> yes, for almost every character at some he, point. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe he was just like, I'm just going to go in a different direction with this. And it, it kind of works. I have I have no problems with it. Um, we you know. should say that the Fantastic Four, by the way, all got their sides back when the Mole Man dropped his staff because, sure. Yes. Well, no. The, and again, the page where I was like, you were blind, Reed. How could you do that, Reed? How? Was literally... Reed wakes up and he says, we can see again. I kept his staff pointed at the wall when he fired it. I hoped it would destroy the ray, which was keeping us sightless. I'm like, how can you point it anywhere? You're fucking blind. Like, this is the thing. I would just love to see, again, when Reed runs for president, his like, oh, I knew that. I knew that. People are like, no, you could fucking not. Stop taking no, credit well, it, for everything. It depends who's writing it. If Stanley is writing it, then people would just be like, that's amazing, Reed. Yes. No, I, he, there, there's actually, I don't know if it's, the, I think it's in the next issue where Johnny says something like, well, there's, you know, basically there's nothing that Reed doesn't know. So I'm like, yeah, I would not really hang a lantern on that one. So, uh, shall we move on to let's, issue let's 90? On. Issue mm-hmm. 90, the scroll takes a slave. No, 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 Graham. The fabulous oh, FF totally must right. face their most impossible challenge when the scroll takes a slave. <laughs> a Quinn Martin production. Anyway, uh, yeah. I'm so happy that you corrected me on that one. <laughs> I am too. One I'm delighted. Us. One <sighs> of us. 
This is the issue that uh, you were complaining about earlier on, issue 90, is, is the issue that is very, very strangely paced. Yeah. The first eight pages of this is essentially epilogue yes. to the previous storyline in the strangest manner. Yeah. All that is actually accomplished in these eight pages is Ben is a bit of a bully to the mole man, which is extra fascinating in light of the mole man's portrayal in the previous issue. Yes. Um, but the mole man escapes and he jumps down uh, an anti-grav drop tube mm-hmm. and takes him back to subterranea. But the FF just leave him. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, there's a whole bunch of, at one point after, after he drops down to subterranea, uh, thing is, I still don't get it. You could have stretched out and stopped him, or Junior could have easily flamed on and caught him before he dropped too far, or don't you glamour boys want to strain yourself? And of course, Johnny says, Reed told me to let him get away. And I'm like, oh. So, uh, keep in mind, there is, you say eight pages, admittedly, we cut to a several page long sequence featuring the scroll, but it does come back. They are still in the house. They've let the mole man get away to subterranea. They are in a house that is completely controlled by him. He gets away and they still decide to hang around and, of course, kind of get what they deserve by nearly blowing up uh, on pages, what, 12 through 14, basically. So after after Reed Richards and Ben's FaceTime. So well, but, but to be fair, on page twelve, for, first of all, uh, page nine after the Man gets away features a wonderful, wonderful panel of the thing putting on a sweater, which yeah. maybe suggests to you, dear listener, how packed this issue is. Yeah. Um, but you do have on page twelve, Reed explicitly say that they're not going to be living there. Yes. No, they're not, ex- but they are still <laughs> hanging out. I mean, it's kind of because he's calling them. He's calling the movers to tell them to stop moving. Wow. Okay. And then he calls Alicia and soon to be Franklin. Yes. On the phone to lighten everyone's spirits. Yes. Yes, and it is also to give you an idea of how leisurely paced this is. What the end of page twelve has Sue saying, "Reed Richards, whom are you calling now?" And Reed says, "Keep watching, Sue. It's a surprise because that's the only way that you have a certain amount of tension here. It's either things blowing up, or we should say for those of you who think that we skipped over pages nine through eleven. Apart from the excitement of watching Ben Grimm put on a sweater, we actually get to see the scroll do." Transform his flying saucer into a rock and change his face. It's three. It's, it's, this is not an action packed issue. Let's put it that way. It really uh, issue is 13, sorry, page 13 rather, does mm-hmm. offer a fascinating glimpse into Stanley's marital life. Yeah. Wherein, on the third panel, Sue calls Reed's husband mine. Yes. And he responds by calling her wife lady. Impossible wife lady. That is nothing compared to. Page two, page two of this issue, uh, where, um, where Sue says, Oh, Reed, Reed, forgive me for breaking down this way. And Reed actually says, forgive you little mother after the valiant way you stood with us, fought for us. I was like, Oh God, that's a little mother. You were just jealous that now everyone knows that that's what you call Edie. Yeah. I'm like, come here, little mother. 
after the way you cooked for us, cleaned for us, and of course fought for us. I mean, it's really, it's so deeply patronizing. It's just, ah, uh, yeah, seriously, I do not, there could not be enough Valium in the Lee household, as far as I can tell. Because I'm sure Stan comes home and is like, Excelsior, wife lady, I'm home. And she's like, one second, dear, I have three of these to take. So, okay. Oh, man. Then, sadly, after the FaceTime with Alicia and soon-to-be-named Baby Franklin, uh, the house explodes. Yes. <laughs> Which is so great. I love that it takes that long, and then all of a sudden they're like, is that an earthquake? Oh, no, the house is exploding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it disappears. The best part is, Reed's response is, try to put it out of your mind, dear. Yeah. Like a bad dream. As opposed to... Oh, yeah, the house just exploded with all her shit in it. Yeah, exactly. I do love, the, again, in the sense of like, hmm, okay, what's the, the Reed Richards priority chain? If you cannot save the world, the next stage is patronize your wife. It's like, it's all over now, Sue. Try to put it out of your mind, dear. And Sue basically isn't even really saying shit. Like, everyone else looks just as alarmed, but he's like, no, no. No, no, no tears from you. She's like, I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. It was causing headaches. No, no, little mother, put it out of your mind. Exactly. I was going to go for little mother as well. I like how both of us have focus on little mother as the worst. <laughs> Even worse than wife lady, little mother is... Uh, Honestly, I may start calling Edie wife lady, but I would <laughs> never call her little mother, not even as a joke. That would just be like, I don't even th I think it would, I could feel myself kind of gagging on the word halfway through. It's just like, uh. <laughs> we cut from that uh, to the scroll in New York City where he decides to steal a car wonderfully by, quote, using his shape changer to duplicate the car keys. Oh my God. It's great. Again, the sort of thing that, 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 if you look back in the first dozen issues of the Fantastic Four, Jack Kirby would have done this sequence in a page tops. And now it is... And now it's taking like four or five pages. Uh, seriously, yeah. He does catch up with the thing who's signing autographs with my favorite joke of the issue, which is the thing saying, how's about it spelling Dustin Hoffman? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, there's multiple reasons why that is great. Mm -hmm. My favorite is the idea that the thing actually sounds like Dustin Hoffman. Ooh, that would be kind of amazing. That would right? be kind of amazing. Yeah. Call me Fox. <laughs> <laughs> the scroll catches up with the thing. Uh, yes. The thing is in New York now, as opposed to the rest of FF, who are still in their undisclosed New York suburb. Yes. Where House just exploded. Uh, the scroll catches up with him, pretends to be Reed Richards, and tells him that he has to go with him because it's an invasion from outer space! <laughs> you know, I really have to say, the thing that's so great is, is the scroll just comes off like a weird, vaguely insistent butthead, and therefore he's more or less perfect as a Reed Richards impersonator. Like, just the idea that, that Ben is like, hey, I thought you was at the house with Susie. And he, and he's like, I had to leave fast, Ben. Something came up. We need you. And he's like, oh, no, you don't. I'm, I'm on my way to see Alicia. And, and he's like, Ben, this is it. Life or death. It's an invasion from outer space. I just love it. It is completely the trampling over personal boundaries that you'd expect from Reed Richards. It was great. So... And then you cut back to the uh, rest of the FF, who are hilarious because they're on the phone in the police station complaining that Ben hasn't picked them up in the football plane. <laughs> I shit you not. The dialogue is, 
No, dear. He's on the phone to Alicia, I should say. No, dear. It's nothing to worry about. We hoped he'd pick us up in the pogo plane. Thought Balloon, where can he be? Was he angrier than I thought before? He couldn't have walked out on us. Yes, he could read. He's done like 17 yeah, times. Exactly. I mean, I, That's I, who ben does blame you for that? You know, it totally makes sense. But yeah. But once again, it's kind of this weird idea where he is, where Alicia is like, he's, you know, has tumbled to the fact that, that Reed is trying not to alarm her while trying to find out where the hell Ben is. Um, Do you not love the idea, though, that Reed is, besides being an insensitive asshole, also a really bad actor? Oh, and yeah. so he'd be like, where is he? Where's Ben? Where's Ben? No, he's fine. I'm sure everything's fine. No, it's okay. <laughs> and that's why he's like, he's trying to save me from worrying. Because like, it's obvious. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It, it is true. I have to say, when we started on this Fantastic Four read-through, I never thought that my conclusion would be Reed Richards was a bigger ass butt than I could have ever imagined. But oh my God, he is, he just is the worst. He he really is. It's hilarious. So on the next page, I also love the idea that Ben Grimm on page 19 has caught a cab out to the middle of nowhere with Reed Richards. There's no fantastic car. There's no pogo plane. There's just two of them taking the taxi to an undisclosed disclosed. Uh, location in the woods and Ben is absolutely 100% not even suspicious for a minute. So uh, I kind of, I kind of dig that. I, I, cause let's face it. How long was that cab ride? What the hell could they have talked about? You know what I mean? Like here's, here's Small Ben talk great. talking to what's, some, what's going on with the invasion from outer space stretch. Oh no. Uh, did I say invasion? I meant look at the, t- Oh, it's, it's the lovely time of year. Oh, exactly. The, it's, exactly. It's the, driver, and, driver. Can you turn up this Burt Bacharach song? I really like it. We'll talk in a second, Ben. We'll talk in a second. Uh, mm. Oh, what do you think he was listening to? That, who, who, which Burt Bacharach song? Yeah. I don't know. Did uh, I was going to say Born Free, but that's too... When, what year is Born Free? And of course, I don't even think... Did Burt Bacharach do that? Or was that like someone I, else, like sure Judy Collins Bacharach. or something? I was thinking that it would be music to watch girls lie, but I'm not sure that's Bacharach either. <laughs> did he write the lyrics to Moon River? Maybe we can just say that it was Moon River. Isn't this great that we uh, know so little? <laughs> it, is, it is pretty impressive. Like, listeners, take a tour through the 60s by two people to, who uh, neither experienced it nor care about it. The internet has told me that Music to Watch Girls by is, in fact, written by Burt Bacharach. Oh, well, there we uh, go. Let's see if he did Born Free. Uh, uh, oh, the internet is not helping with this Oh, one John Barry with lyrics by Don Black, which, let's there face you it, go. John Barry, he's the best. Um, Moon River, was it Burt Bacharach? Uh, no, Henry Mancini with John, Johnny Mercer. Damn it, man. I am bad with my Burt with my Burt Bacharach, uh, uh, foo. That's for but sure. But on the Skrull home planet, they're yes. all written by Skrull Burt Bacharach. Which is the best. Which would be the best. <laughs> Skrull Bacharach. <laughs> oh, man. People, if you're listening to this thinking, they are goofy as shit, this episode. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I think that's all these issues. It is these um, issues. We should finish off uh, ni- issue 90 by saying that once Skrull Reed has lured Ben into the middle of nowhere, uh, he shoots him with a nerve gun. Yeah. 
which knocks Ben out, and then he kidnaps Ben into space. Mm-hmm. That is the the end of the issue. Next, Ben Grimm's slave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the issue totally lived up to its title. The scroll did take a slave. Yes, that is that is, uh, and and this one, this issue ninety one, the thing enslaved. Also lives up to its title, which is great because next issue, let's just say, does not. Markedly <laughs> does not. So some backstory for people who, let's just say, are wondering what the shit happens in issue 91. Uh, it's called The Thing Enslaved or the FF's ranks are finally broken when we find The Thing Enslaved. But what it really should be called is Jack Kirby really loved a piece of the action when he saw it on Star Trek the year before. Exactly. I thought that he would lift it almost full scale. Yeah. I, it's a, the, it's, it's yeah. amazing. The, the stuff that he does not actually lift from a piece of the action, I think he more or less picks up. From, he, he basically steals from the Star Trek episode where it's Kirk versus the Gorn, which I should have looked up the title. Because... Uh, uh, it's not on a mock time? Uh, no, 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 no. A mock time is where – definitely I can see why you would think of mock time because Kirk and Spock fight each other with some weapons that oh, look yes. a little bit like – Oh, it's arena then, isn't it? Yeah, it's arena, So, uh, which I think is entirely appropriate. Anyway, yes, a piece of the action. Kirby sees it, loves it, and gets a chance to draw it. And I have to oh, say so – we should, we should explain for people who aren't Star Trek fans. A piece of the action is the episode of Star Trek where the Enterprise visits a world that is based upon gangster movies from the 1920s and 30s. Yes. Yes. Uh, and in this issue, uh, the thing arrives on a scroll world where society has been constructed around – a gangster who was kidnapped to the planet years earlier. Yes. And so basically Kirby gets to act out all of his, or draw out all of his, his childhood, basically. This is what I actually love about it. Mobsters and and flappers. Yeah. I mean, I would like to believe that basically, um, you know, I, I think the, the accepted narrative is, is that Kirby is getting, growing fed up with, Marvel, he is getting ready to leave. Um, and, you know, for me, after looking at our previous episode, which had a ridiculously high number of androids dressed as blandly as possible, uh, you get a three issue, I guess it's a four issue um, story in the FF that is a th- more or less a thing solo adventure, which is Kirby's favorite character. And to make it better, it is Kirby meshing three different styles. He's definitely revisiting his beloved gangster movies. There are street scenes that are very clearly based on Kirby's own memories of growing up in the slums of New York. And then he throws an absurd science fiction patina on top of them. In some panels, you have all three layers happening at the same time. And... And so, so there's something that's kind of great that really is um, charming it's, in a. Yes, it's it's amazingly, staggeringly unoriginal. Yeah, but there's something kind of wonderful about it, and yeah. this is the start of me recognizing the 
derivative yet utterly fun Kirby of his DC work. His DC work, and and I feel even when he later returns to Marvel, to Marvel, yeah, it, yeah, his Marvel, his second phase of Marvel looks a lot more like a lot of the stuff that you see here. But you also do see a very strong, um, yeah, precursor to his uh, DC work, where even though you have extended storylines, and this itself is four parts, you get Kirby kind of, I don't know, again, just figuring out ways in which he wants to draw the things that he he wants to draw. Um, you know, of course, there, you know, if we said no pun intended every time we said the thing on this podcast and, you know, for one and meant the other. But uh, so uh, so let's just uh, let's talk about it. It is no surprise then that the first uh, three, two pages of The Thing Enslaved actually have gangsters sitting around smoking stogies and and uh, uh, you've got a flapper smoking a cigarette in a cigarette holder while talking about being able to uh, get the thing so they could have him as a slave for boss Barker to fight in the, um, I don't know if they actually specify the, the, the gladiatorial pits, but they definitely say that they are willing to pay 10 no, perfect they, they power just, stones. They just, yeah, yeah. They just talk about him being a fighter, a fighter. It's super fun because with the exception of, you know, radio report from the skull, scroll slave ship or the 10 perfect power stones, they're talking in stereotypical gangster talk from that era. Yeah. You know, you bet your fedora it's true. Right. Right. Yeah, you bet your fedora it's says true. Says you, okay, wise guy, and all, all that sort of thing. You know? Mm-hmm. Louis says he'll kill your boy before a squirrel can sneeze. <laughs> and it's it's kind of fun because you kind of see how cliched Lee's dialogue is mm-hmm. when he's layering in other cliches, I guess. Yes. Because it's not massively different from Lee's normal dialogue. It's true. In fact... Like, this purpose, purposefully meant to be cliched. Yeah. And it's actually very close to what Lee normally writes. Yes. So much so that, in fact, one of the great charms of the issue is when the thing arrives on this planet, he... He fits in. He fits in. He is so busy smarting off to the gangsters who are smarting back to him that it's that it is it is very the the what if story where Ben basically stays on the planet and becomes the top gangster uh, is really really easy to imagine, you know. And again, would be great. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So there is uh, a, a missed opportunity by not doing that as a what if. Yeah, it's true. I think I think people will be like, eh, who cares? But it, it could be fun. So uh, there's also something that is very interesting that I don't know how to go into because it's 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 one of those things that I feel uh, <laughs> sadly is something that two white guys are almost as. Um, is this, uh, are you going to talk about the fact that there is a weird racial overtone to Torgo the robot? There is a weird racial overtone to Torgo the robot, but I was going to say there is a very strong, strange. Ben Grimm is called a slave over and over and over and over. And one of the things that is tough is, again, I can't tell to what extent that it is um, 
it's completely unconscious, I guess. You know what I mean? In that, like, for example, we talk about Star Trek, a piece of the action. There's many episodes in Star Trek where Captain Kirk and the crew are enslaved. And there seems to be, it's sort of a, um, a cliche of science fiction narratives during this time that, that humans are, there's a lot of talk of humans being enslaved. And of course, when we talk about humanity being enslaved, we really talk about white Western European civilization. So what I was going to say wasn't so much the weird racial overtones with Torgo, although it fits in considering he's like a noble black robot, but the way in which Ben Grimm with his uh, crazy power sapping slave caller uh, is himself a very strange slave fantasy. You know, like I don't, if I'm talking about all the layers that is in Kirby's story, which include, you know, gangster movies, his childhood with like, you know, rotten gangs of kids, like throwing bricks, uh, you know, you have a bunch of people being herded up into a slave truck and driven down the middle of a slave truck, which is actually marked slave truck, slave truck. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and then is driving down the street next to roadsters and streetcars. It's there's a weird additional level of fantasy I feel that's happening there that I, that I wish that I knew how to break down because on the one hand, there's part of me that's kind of like, eh, you, you know, this is, this is happening around the same time that the first planet of the apes movie actually comes out. You know, it's clear that there is a certain, white person fear, I suppose, of, of, you know, uh, anxiety about the concept of slavery that is happening, you know, post civil rights era. And yet I'm fascinated by the way in which Kirby is, I would like to say sort of investing that fantasy with sort of a, hopefully a nobler sort of more humanizing influence. I, you know? I'm really uneasy about the slavery aspect of this and actually on, and of most science fiction slave stories. Yes, absolutely. Um, because it's not, it's subconscious, I think, to give the, the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. to those responsible. But in that all of these narratives essentially end up with, and then the slaves had an uprising and everything was better. There's a, a layer of, I don't know. You, you real slaves just didn't try hard enough. Yes, well... Do you know I, what I mean? Like, right. a really uncomfortable level of, well, here's what you should have done. Right. Well, except, I don't know. I mean, I I see your point. I, 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 I would... I, I, like, I, really, I really feel that, especially in this one, which slave gets thrown around really fucking lightly, which, yes. on the one hand, of course it does. Yeah. It's a fantastic four comic. Exactly. It, this is never going to be a genuine, in-depth exploration of slavery. Completely. Completely. But at the same time, if you yeah. were going to not only define characters as slaves, but use slave in the title of the story in multiple issues in a row. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some really uncomfortably cavalier about it. Yes. Like, slave seems more... Being a slave's like uh, an Indian's mm -hmm. than anything else. 
Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's two things here. Part of me, part of me would like to think that, well, the sad fact of the, the matter is, is that it is, it, it's best to look at the comic as a cultural product of its time in which this was the sort of thing that kind of white people could play with as an, as imagery for basically a fun comic. And I think sadly yeah, that's that, where, yeah, where it has to be. Slavery is the, you know, that's horrible, but we're better than that now, you guys. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, or just more, as you put it, like you said, there is, I think a, a staple of the fantasy is very much the idea that that's, you put someone in in slavery, like at every point, Ben Grimm's like, okay, then we'll break out. Like at every point, he's saying, okay, we're going to turn around, and as soon as we get a second, like as soon as this collar comes off, I'm going to bust someone in the chops. Like he's always saying to Torgo once they actually meet, come on, let's take these guys on and let's overthrow them. And I think that is, a, again, to sort of harken back to the original series of Star Trek, that also is very much what happens whenever – you know, Kirk ends up in a period where some some all powerful omniscient alien is uh, has him in, enslaved, and yes. like you said, there's a little bit of the fantasy of oh, a we would never put up with that, and b therefore that's part of why it happened to you guys of color because you just weren't trying to fight it hard enough, you know. And, and well, especially in Star Trek, it's super interesting because so many of the Star Trek narratives are. Kirk and the Enterprise crew are standing against slavery. Yes. Which, when Kirk and the Enterprise Blue represent America, is this really strange thing. Yeah. You know, there's this massive dissonance mm-hmm. where you think, I don't know you guys. Yeah. Maybe you're, maybe you're actually on the other side and you don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's true. I mean, it's one of those weird, complicated, because they never can quite escape from the era. As, as you know, on the one hand, Trek had a much more multiracial cast and treated more people as equal and even, you know, had to fight to figure out their way around the whole interracial kiss ban that the, you know. I mean, much more interracial feels a bit strong. They were all white apart from two two actors who essentially bit players in the show. True, true. But I mean, at the same time. I don't know, they had that Canadian guy playing a Scottish guy. (laughs) But... But Why the times like an alien. But the times were such that if Nicole Nichols is to be believed, and I do believe her, she literally had Martin Luther King tell sure, her no, no. that she was a role model. And, he, I, and I, I agree, but I think, I think suggesting that uh, I think there's some we have to express more admiration for them being individual pioneers as opposed to saying that the cast was more multiracial because it really was only two actors. Uh, uh, yeah, I suppose that's probably true. I mean, right? You've you've got uh, you've got. Multiracial for me suggests that it's not literally two people out of a cast of eight. Yeah, that's true. Well, you've got you do have other members of the cast pretending to be other ethnicities, but yeah, no, I see, I see your point. I see your point. Chekhov does not. <laughs> no, I. This is my. I. This is why I'm. Oh, Graham, you're such a hard person to agree with. Anyway, <laughs> one of the things that I do find fascinating is yes, slavery is thrown away, uh, thrown around in these issues in a way that is very cavalier. And I would like to believe that part of me is like because Ben is an orange rock dude, he kind of doesn't necessarily read as white per se. Like- you know, and so it takes a, li- it, it actually 
to me makes the issue sort of like Star Trek a little bit more multivalent, but only a little. And definitely by the time you get to the end of the issue, uh, the end of the issue is pretty much like, and now here's a page of white privilege. Da, 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 da. I'm sorry, not this issue, the end of the storyline, which which we'll get to. Okay, so the story is, the thing is brought to this planet where everything is based upon the gangster, the wonderful gangster 1920s. Yeah. He is told that he is a slave. He is transported on slave truck, which says slave truck on the yes. side, just in case you missed it, to his new home, which looks like an old prohibition brewery. Um, it's where he's going to meet the slave keeper, who looks like Edward G. Robinson, and has a great name. Is he not called something like... Howard G. Robinson. Yeah, it, it, it really is something like, yeah. Very, very close. But he's basically told, you're going to fight for me. Tough luck. Uh, and he, the issue ends with him being thrown into a cell, which he shares with Torgo. Torgo happily tells us, I am Torgo. I exist for one purpose alone. I'm being trained to slave my foe before the, when the great games begin. You know him well. He is called The Thing. And only your death will justify my life. So... Torgo is really problematic for me. Yeah. Because I really read Torgo as a black dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that Torgo is the black slave who is also a magical negro, but it's okay, you guys, he's actually a robot. Mm-hmm. The, the it's okay, you guys, he's actually a robot part doesn't really hold much water with me. Yeah, well, I mean, it is. It's, like it's, it's, an, an, it's an entire story where they're like, hey, slave uprising. Yeah. But, you know, we've got our black dude, but he's not a black dude. He's a robot, and he's an alien robot, so it's okay, but he's called Torgo. Well, you know, honestly. Uh, I, there's, there's so much about this that just makes me go, oh, I remember the insensitivity and awkwardness I felt around the whole Black Panther storyline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, part of me is just like, on the one hand, although Torco is not an exceptionally deep character, not that you get a deep characterization for new characters in, in the comic at this sort of run, Torco is more or less a decent character. In that sense, I see sort of your comparison to uh, a muck time, you know? I mean, he is he is a character that has a certain amount of dignity uh, and he has a certain amount of purpose. But, but yeah, I think the thing that is, that is rough is you have these issues are very much stuff that is, I want to say, like directly from the depths of Jack Kirby's unconscious and Star Trek, I should add. Um, and and where he goes with them is it would be great if there was a way in which those narratives said anything new or went anywhere new or were trying to to do anything other than just kind of like, yeah, we got a black robot um, and he's pretty great. You know, like I guess in a way, again, for the time, that was probably, God help us, you know, progressive. Um I mean, of course, the idea that he is a robot is deeply confused. It's clearly confusing to everyone, you know, not least of which is Stan Lee. Yeah, he's a robot until the last episode where the thing pretty much says, I don't even know if he was a robot or not. Yeah. Two things I want to say about this issue super quickly before we get on to the next one. Mm -hmm. First is, this is essentially a thing solo story. Yes. The rest of the FF appear for maybe two pages? 
looking for, for Ben. But yeah. Ben is the focus of the entire issue. That's actually true of the Nets issue as well. These two two issues, uh, 91 and 92, are essentially solo Ben Grimm stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very interesting because we talked before about the subplot and the lack of a, a, a dramatic subplot. Mm-hmm. The FF become the subplot for these issues. That's right. Uh, which is, is, is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Because while I think that Kirby has pretty much checked out of the mm-hmm. book by this point, he's still looking for something to entertain himself. Mm-hmm. And so while it not be the, might not be the innovative book that it once was, it's also not falling into self-parody just yet. Yeah. And it came close. It, mm-hmm. it came close to the last batch of issues we, we read, I think. Yeah, I, I think so but, too. But it's, it's, for whatever reason, and honestly, it might just be Kirby being bored with the formula. Mm-hmm. He is switching up the formula, which is really, really interesting. Well, and uh, yes. I mean, let's keep in mind, again, he's telling a thing solo story. And to me, it makes a lot of sense if you look at not so much a piece of the action, but if you look at Arena, it's pretty common, you know, to have essentially the Enterprise, you know, cut to the Enterprise being like, how are we going to free, you know, Jim Kirk? you know, as the scenes that you cut to when, when you cut back to, to, to Kirk. So mm-hmm. I think it's fine. I mean, for me, the thing that, that what surprised me is, is that this story really does go on f- uh, for several it's issues. Far too long. <laughs> well, uh, but see, this is the thing. F- for the most part, it's kind of not dull. There is something that is what I think, what I find intriguing is, is that the thing is, between the situation that Kirby has cooked up and just the way that the, the, that the thing is, because he is such a volatile, highly reactive character, um, you know, it, it is, it's, it's not a surprise for those of us who go on to appreciate him in Marvel 2 and 1 or his own solo title many years after. But he is a character that is more than capable of carrying a book, you know. Um, in a way that I think if this was four issues where Reed Richards had been kidnapped and put into, you know, a slave stockade, you know, to fight, I'm sure he would have also, or Johnny or anyone could have, you know, kept it going. But, but thanks to, I think, you know, how much Kirby likes the thing, uh, this, the story, the story does move. It's got a lot of verve. It helps that every two or three pages, is like you know a scene in which Ben Grimm ends, ends up getting to, into a fight for the next mm-hmm. you know for these three issues, even characters as dumb as Magno Man, which is I gotta which say the next issue he's wonderful. The other thing that I was going to say really quickly is this issue also really cements that Ben Grimm is the best character in the Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah. really tying him with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I the other characters might have been able to anchor this story for this length, mm-hmm. but I, I, I not without not with this much ease. Like yeah. I honestly, genuinely cannot imagine Sue or Reed doing no. this. No, 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 no. You you really can't. Or even when you look at the situations in the fifties when Johnny and White Wingfoot are sort of roaming the world and the Prester John issues, which are you know is barely when Prester John shows up. I want to say that's at best an issue, maybe, you know, half an issue of intro and then the actual thing. 
action happens. But here you've got a lot, and and some of it is. Uh, so t- if you don't mind, let's jump ahead to FF ninety two. The fabulous FF's most powerful member turns into Ben Grimm, killer, which again is the the title. In case you were wondering, that is does not come true as far as I know in any way, shape, or form in this issue. Uh, but he's willing to kill. Uh, this is the issue where you discover that Edward G. Robinson is actually called Napoleon G. Robertson. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it was just a beautiful. Oh my name. god, I love yeah. everything about that. Napoleon G. Robertson. Robertson. Yeah. Uh, just great. The, the picture, the opening splash page, which has the thing squatting with like a, his little cosmic slave yoke, like stuck around his head. Just, I, I always love how easy, um, the body language is comes to Kirby for the thing, you know, he, it's it's a great page in general in terms of, in terms of body language mm -hmm. because when the, the, gangsters behind him as well yeah yes wonderfully casually menacing right well and i think this is the issue which has the full page splash that i absolutely adore which i guess we'll get to so uh for those people who are who are uh, (laughs) who are listening to us to explain the plot god help you uh but basically it opens up with the thing is in with torgo he is waiting for his slave collar to get off taken off him because it's sapping all his strength and once they take it off him he plans to tear the joint apart uh and uh, Torgo tells him, yeah, no dice with that. There was a hypno glow in the lights that has been penetrating your mind. And basically you cannot actually do anything that the, the gangsters don't want you to. So, which, which is then demonstrated. They take off the collar mm-hmm. and he literally physically cannot hit them with it. He yeah. swings his arm back in order to whack them over the head with it and then finds out that he cannot move. Yes. Yes. Uh, This is followed by a sequence where in order to train Ben up, they have him get the crap beaten out of him by the Magno Man, which is a ridiculous design and also impressive because – so great. Oh, the Magno – seriously, I don't know if people – if you're a big Jack Kirby fan, you may remember that there were a series of Jack Kirby trading cards from Topps. I want to say back in the early to mid nineties where they essentially got a hold of all the stuff that Kirby was doing, usually as ideas that he was pitching to Ruby Spears productions and, or characters that he was just drying up his charts. This has a little bit of that where I swear to God, uh, at the top of page four, Kirby is drawing a snake creature that looks like one of the beloved BattleBot toys that I had. Was it BattleBots? Is that what they were called? Then you've got Magno Man, who not only looks like a little silver guy with a magnet coming out of his head, but also has a six-pack that extends entirely up to his clavicle. That's what I love. It's not a six-pack, Jeff. It's a 12-pack. I suppose you're right. It is. He is, is, instead of the two abs, he has three abs and extends all the way up his chest. <laughs> so, uh, and then for those of us who, who are paying attention on page five, uh, Stan Lee cannot resist having Mr. Fantastic help the thing, uh, win the fight because basically, because at one point as Ben is crawling with determination against the ground, being oppressed by the rays of the Magno man, he says, I can't give up 
old Stretcho always said, there's got to be a way. And then basically rips up some ground and, and ends up clobbering the Magno Man. But I'm like, really, we had to give Reed Richards credit for that because I think it is a contractual obligation in the Fantastic Four comics one way or another. Um, I don't know if you have any other things that you want to cover, but let me just jump to page seven, which I adore because it is once again, Reed Richards in a moment of crisis somehow is instabeard did not appear, but of course his ridiculously prickish behavior comes, including him saying that Sue cannot travel with the rest of them to uh, rescue uh, Ben because I'm not thinking of her as your sister, boy, he says to Johnny, or even as my wife, but she's the mother of my son. And that means this mission goes without her. And I'm just like, uh, like it's, it's impressively double sexist. It's not just that Sue can't come because he's some, she's defined as a sister or a wife, but it's most like importantly, the-, the mother of a son. And therefore it's the most, you, def- you definitely to- don't have any say in this matter or yourself, Sue. Yeah, you don't have any say. You're, and don't you're, not, me... you're not a person. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, this is it. It's not even you, – you clearly you were never a person. But even as a – the fact that I can't define you except in any other roles, it's like you have the penultimate role, the ultimate role that a woman can have, which is raising another man, you know, is just – Oh, it is. It is so terrible. I'm just like, ah, didn't Stan, Stan had daughters too. I really hope that some of this shit like lightened up as time went on, but, oh, oh, anyway, fortunately we have, we have the thing hitting another amazing battle bot that's called a Rhinogon on page eight. Uh, and then getting um, slammed into the ground with a simple hydrolo press that, uh, that the thing fucks up because he is Ben Grimm the thing, which is great. Oh, but also, it has enough power to push through a planet. Yes! Yeah, which, which is really, yeah. A, a really kind of impressive. Wow, the thing is very strong then, you guys. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. Very strong. So... <laughs> It's kind of either embarrassing that he was getting his ass handed to him by Magnoman earlier in that case, or it says exactly how powerful Magnoman is. Sure, he's a blue guy who's got a magnet sticking out of his head, but apparently he's even stronger than a guy who can out strength, out strength, out. uh, Go with it, Graham. Embrace it. That's that's more or less what this issue demands. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I was going to edit that out, but I'm going to leave it all in now because she said that. So, uh, press. Yes. There we go. uh, Move a planet. Yeah. Um, I I want to say, are are you going to, I'm sorry. I I suppose I should let you take over. Mm -hmm. I was just going to finish the plot, which is after that thing is taken to the great games, which is hilariously announced by lots of women on telephones. Oh, so good. That happens. And I'm definitely going to put, uh, those two panels up on the, the uh, the website because yeah. that that's an amazing sequence. They go to the Great Games. The Great mm-hmm. Games features, amongst other things, a spectacular splash page on page 14, which I think is the one you want to talk about. Yes. Uh, but it puts the thing and Torgo into conflict because mm-hmm. the thing is essentially trying to convince Torgo to lead an uprising and Torgo refuses. They go into the, uh, the Great Games where they discover there is a sonic disruptor aimed at their home planet. 
And yes. that is why Sonic Boom cannot rebel. Because mm-hmm. if to rebel is to mean that a Sonic Disruptor, a.k.a. the Death Star, yes. will destroy your home planet. Therefore, the thing realizes that he too must fight. As he makes that decision, you see Crystal, Reed, and Johnny taking off in the apparently building-sized flying saucer uh, <laughs> that is heading towards the, the Skrull planet he's kept on. That's the plot of the issue, which is to say there's an awful lot of playing for time in it. There's a, there's a it, lot of playing for time. A, an amazing amount of just filler. Wonderfully illustrated filler, fun filler, but yeah. it, it is pretty much filler. But let's talk about page 14 because it is an amazing splash that stopped me cold when I read it. Me too. Me too. I mean, we're used to Kirby – like even when he's more or less, you know, sort of starting to zone out, he's capable of delivering some astonishing full page splashes. And I think we, you know, we've we've referenced a lot of them. There's the skull with the bling. Uh, there's that amazing full page splash of Galactus that is breathtaking. You know, the, that we've mentioned in previous episodes. This particular page is. Just a bunch of gangsters meeting in a uh, the balcony of an ornate movie palace, but it is fabulous because Kirby is drawing the shit out of it. The thing that I love, uh, there's so many things that are fabulous about it. Particularly, it is it's Kirby going to town on gangsters, drawing gangsters of various uh, varieties and stripes, various made guys. And and Kirby, as we know, for, for people who follow him and pick up something like In the Days of the Mob, Kirby does not like gangsters, but that does not stop him from having a just terrific take on, like he knows them, the body language of the characters on this page are fabulous. And of course, none more so than the guy who is in the sort of upper right-hand corner of the page, who's leaning in saying, hey, you guys, all the smart money running running about even between the thing and Torgo, this one can be anybody's fight. That is not nearly to me as interesting as the fact that somehow Kirby has managed to create a page that is so strangely dimensional that that character is standing too close to you. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yes, it's, it's an amazing page. It's, he's not my favorite character, although he is definitely the one that looms largest in the, in the page. Yeah. My favorite character is the guy leaning on the banister. Oh, uh, that is so funny. The center of the page. Yeah. Very, very silent character. Yeah. Who's uh, wearing glasses and just looking yeah, silent. Just looks <laughs> dangerous. He looks dangerous. I actually have to say he's number three. Number two for me is actually be, there's the waiter that is between the guy that you've mentioned and the guy that I love, which is the guy who's just smoking and leaning on one arm. And he also looks like bad news. Like there's a variety of guys here that look that are visual grotesques that are using the visual stereotype of like smoking cigars or they've got cigarettes dangling out of their mouths. There's a couple of guys here that just look observed though, and are, are just casually devastating, you know? Yeah. It's, it's an amazing page because it is at once less spectacular. There's no superheroes in this. There's, you know, there's no, no one displaying their power, but it's, it bowls you over. 
it's, yeah. it's such an amazing page, just full of life and, mm-hmm. and full of of very particular characters. Yeah. You know who all of these guys are. Yeah. Yeah, and and one of the things that I really like about it is is that it does run the you you start to see something like the the degree of quote unquote verisimilitude that that someone like Francis Ford Coppola later brings to something like The Godfather, where on the one hand you have recognizable quote unquote movie gangsters, but you also see characters that also represent something more is it's fabulous. And, and I do have to say that uh, as, as Graham mentioned, just strictly from a telling the story sort of thing, this, the, the pages move because Kirby knows how to tell a story. Not much necessarily happens, but if you're someone who like Graham and I are, who are a, um, guys who really dig Kirby, this is Kirby like, I don't know. I haven't followed all of his Thor stuff, but like, oh my God, Kirby is so outsidery here. I mean, there's an amazing shot where someone's looking through like the speakeasy door of seeing Boss Barker drive up in his little car on it's panel two of page 13. And there's like a black star like blazing in the sky above it. You yeah. know, it's. Yeah. It's not naturalistic at all. Like you said, those two panels where the Greek games are starting and it's sort of that classic like radio, you know, and telephone montage with the gangsters all calling each other. You've got like weirdo telephone telegram lines uh, uh, strung up against a sky filled with planets. It's really just delightful the way that Kirby is taking – just taking really just kind of fed up to the point where he's taking all this stuff from his life and he's jamming it all together in a way that feels um, organic, organic, but only because he's doing it. If you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, exactly. It works in Kirby world. Yeah. Like if you surrender to Kirby's logic, yeah, it works. It works. And, and- at this point, you have to have. I, I honestly think if you're still reading the book at this point, you've surrendered Kirby logic. Yeah, yeah. You, you or you've wondered it by mistake, and you're just going to be like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, exactly. So, uh, which is good. We should probably talk. I mean, I'm like, oh shit! Once again, I've managed to you know drag us somewhat long, but we should talk about issue 93 at the mercy of Torgo or the fabulous Fantastic Four together again at last at the mercy of Torgo because it is it doubles down on the Kirby logic, right? I mean... It really does. And here's a sad thing. Sinnott isn't inking this one. No. Uh, Frank... Oh, God, how do you pronounce it? Giacoa is how I say it, so... Let's say Giacoa. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frank Giacoa is inking it. And it's a shame, Mm -hmm. because the last issue especially, you could really feel Sinnott. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, To the point where on the splash page of uh, 92... Part of me wonders if Sinnott penciled and inked the gangsters at the back. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could be totally wrong, but mm-hmm. there's something about the line work that feels much more Sinnott than it feels Kirby. Uh, w- I'm sorry, sorry, where is this at? The splash page of 92. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you said gangsters or something, so I was thrown off. But uh, but yes. Oh wait, hold on. Yeah, um, let me jump jump back over to that. I'm looking. I'm out, I'm already ahead on ninety three. So wait, ninety three is Giacoa is ninety two yes. Giacoa as well. 
No, ninety ninety two Sinnet, and I'm saying I think Sinnet drew the gangsters oh, yeah. on the splash page of ninety two. Yeah. No, I, 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 it is that sort of thing. I feel like there should be a disclaimer that comes with every issue of this is that definitely when you see, when you see issue 93, you realize, I don't know, to me, what I was fascinating was how much in bits and pieces, uh, I see things in Kirby where I'm like, oh, I thought that was more Sinnet than, than it actually is. And yet Sinnet is so capable of bringing a dimensionality and a depth to Kirby's pencils that's really, really hard to achieve. I mean, you look at this issue by Frank Giacoa and he, he does it. There's some like gorgeous looking panels here, but there's also just a flatness a flatness that, that happens to all of the characters and, and to Ben in his facial expressions where suddenly he is, it's a cruder, harsher sort of uh, drawing yeah. style. You're, you know? you're, you're definitely right. And in some places that works, I think, on mm-hmm. the final panel of page two. Of yes. Page, mm-hmm. uh, it's great. Reed looks great with that vastly yeah. reduced flatness. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it really, really works. But then you go to page three and Ben just doesn't look. <laughs> he looks like a South Park flat. character at, uh, in, in panel four. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's very, very interesting to see what works and what doesn't. Under right. Paper. Let me jump ahead and mention, although I assume you were probably going to, so I apologize. The There is a Kirby full-page splash on page five, five. Yeah, yeah, where Torgo finally lets loose. It's the moment where he and Ben are in the ring. Torgo takes a punch that, that is supposed to look like it is more or less knocking Ben out of the panel. Uh, and... It's the eggs kill it. It is a dog. It's a dog. Yeah, it does the not do work. Not help that at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's amazing to me that that a page that is, in some ways, very similar to the page of the mole man striking at the FF, um, with a with a with a skewed perspective, just does not work. And it 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 is. It's far weaker than that amazing shot of all the gangsters meeting in the the movie balcony. You know, so. Yeah, it's kind of a shame. Giacoa is, you know, he 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 works his ass off, and it's to me, it's clear he's trying really hard to do right by Kirby. He's not. This isn't this isn't Vince Coletta time. But by the same token, for those of us who've been reading this, the FF now for like what forty some odd issues, fifty some odd issues with Sinnet as inker, um, it's 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 a it's a bit of a painful change up. You know, it is. It really is a moment where you realize how much Sinnet has been bringing to the book, even when, even when it feels like Sinnet has not really been fully present, or mm-hmm. when Kirby's phoning it in. You just take Sinnet out of the equation, and you realize how smoothly the book was running before this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, it's kind of fun that on the one hand you have like a gladiatorial combat page where a lot of the pages look a little more unpolished and rough and brutal. And yet at the same time, it's not really, it's not so fun that it makes up for the lack of Senate. So yeah, yeah, it's true. Also, this is a very strange issue. So the plot of this issue is that while Ben and Targo are forced to fight and as much by accident as everything else, sort of delay the outcome of the fight by continually fouling each other and causing the fight to continue. The, The rest of the FF trace the Skrull Slaver who then mm-hmm. leads them to the planet, and they end up rescuing Ben. It's, it should be the big climactic moment. 
And in fact, it has all the ingredients to be the mm-hmm. climax moment. But it falls curiously short for me. It really feels flat. Did you get that as well? Uh, uh, let me just make sure because unfortunately there are a few other factors. You mean when the FF finally come in and rescue him? I have all everything about the issue falls flat. Yeah, actually, the, the, everything. The fight, yes, the fight with Torgo does not feel as as either as exciting or as emotional as it right. should. Right. Uh, and the the FF the FF's arrival and reunion with Ben. Yeah. Feels amazingly rushed, and yes. and this is something I am going to blame on the inks. Mm-hmm. Really underwhelming because when they meet him. There's a group hug that Giego just essentially puts in all black. Yeah, exactly. It's super silhouetted because he just can't figure out a way, I assume, to make it work. And it's a shame because if you compare that to the family hug that happens, I think, just a few issues earlier uh, on, you know, uh, I want to say like really early on after they get out of the mole man's house or something, there's, there's definitely a big reunion hug or maybe it's the hug of next issue, but uh, yeah, it, well, okay. So there's a few things. Yes. One of the things is interesting. I mentioned the, the Kirk versus Gorn episode of star Trek as a possible influence, because one of the things that is interesting about that is, is that Kirk himself is, sort of outclassed and in a few cases makes some bad decisions, but I'm much more, I actually have thought that you would be, that we would be on opposite sides of the fence here. And that one of the things that you would love is the idea that Ben Grimm, although he's an amazing fighter is so goddamn headstrong that he cannot use any of the weapons. And, you know, just the fact, I mean, there is something kind of funny about the fact that they, that there is a a weapon that is thrown into the, the battle on page seven and Ben to basically show off breaks it on page eight and nearly kills himself, you know? Um, and again, you know, Torgo, more or less, once they start fighting with the old shovel blocks, um, Torgo more or less warns Ben that there is going to be like a ray coming out the end. And and Ben, ben just doesn't get it. Um, the thing that I find more, to me, more interesting and sort of more disappointing is, is that uh, you would think it would be a no-brainer for Kirby the idea that Ben shows mercy on Torgo and then later Torgo cannot bring himself to kill Ben. But if you look at page 13, where that ostensibly happens, where Ben says, ah, nuts, I can't get myself to do it. I ain't no crummy murderer. And then Torgo says, you have released the pressure. Uh, it, it is one of those moments where I suspect that Stan is, bringing something that's not actually in the pencils and again is more or less kind of saving the story, you know? Well, yeah. Cause it sets up the, the conclusion. Yes. Which is the Torgo defeats Ben, but because Ben showed him mercy, he shows Ben mercy. That's right. Like you, you need that moment. You need Ben refusing to be the savage. Yes. In order, and again, this is where I get into my, like, Torgo makes me really nervous because I read Torgo as black. But, right. you, you know, that has been teaching Torgo not to be a savage. Well, you know, and, right. But, well, but, but it's, if it's, you it's look at it. Part of Lee's text. 
yeah, it's part of Lee's text. It would be interesting if Kirby's text is that Torgo essentially that 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 hmm, that Kirby, despite his fondness for Ben, doesn't actually make Ben be like the merciful guy. Like he has no point. You know, in other words, the point where they're fighting, there's no point where he shows him mercy. The mercy is entirely from Torgo more or less being the better man, you know, um, it, it would be a tough pull because there's nothing about that. That's really constructed. Like you said, in Lee's narrative, but it would render things somewhat more, somewhat less problematic. I mean, and that being said, as much as I've enjoyed watching the thing in, in the lead up, this issue is disappointing and rushed, not least of which is there's amazing shots where all hell breaks loose on page 19, you see Torgo no less than twice with his gun firing on people, freeing the rest of the slaves. And then in kind of the ultimate moment of like white privilege, Ben's like, yeah, that's amazing. Let's go rather than <laughs> being very much like you would think that the FF would want to hang out and more or less well, help this. To be fair, Ben does not say let's go. Reed says let's go. Reed is the one who talks about uh, yeah. quickly now we left the saucer at the edge of the spaceport. But again, in the art, it definitely looks like Ben is doing the leading. Ben yeah. is the, the feet don't fail me now, guy. Yeah, yeah. He's uh -huh. he's more or less shoving on Reed. He's looking around and he does not feel that it's his fight in any way. I, I'm very there's there's just a lot that's disappointing about this issue. It feels very oddly paced. Mm -hmm. The the fight between uh, ben and Torgo is given a lot of space and it doesn't really feel earned in any way. No, no. The, the FF's chase, uh, mm -hmm. first of all, to catch the slaver and secondly, arriving on the, the, the planet mm -hmm. feels just very odd and, and awkward mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at odds with the rest of the narrative. And then the slave uprising is given less than a page. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I wanted to see more of that. Mm -hmm. Not that I wanted to see a, a conclusion to it. Not that I wanted to see what happens. But I wanted it to be given more than a, more than the what, five panels or something that it actually gets. There, it, yeah. it's, it's it's a very very strange issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, it, it's interesting. Again, it, it's almost as if Kirby has. <laughs> and it, it's the timing is weird since this he did this you know well before the career of Grant Morrison, but it sort of reminds me of Grant Morrison in the idea of like Kirby has built everything to this issue, and by the time it shows up, he's more or less bored of it. There is not nothing; everything is so rushed. He's trying to get it over with, and there's not like you said the fight is strangely disappointing, which. I, it's possible, again, that Kirby is trying to – that is something that is deliberate with him. But it just is – It's a, it, like you said, it's a weirdly paced issue and there is no point for any of the emotional moments to land. And you have pages like – there's an entire page of – well, an almost entire page of page 15 are the gangsters yelling at each other and more or less, you know, being subdued by one another while they're yelling about fouls and things. It, it doesn't serve any purpose. It doesn't – it doesn't really well, – You have exactly the same on page 17 where yeah. you see the, the old-fashioned car flying through the, the street. Yeah, right. 
it, it, it serves no purpose. You know that, that that world exists. Or even page 16, although I love the shots of yes. the, the FF dressed up in period gear. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, absolutely. I love that shot. That shot. That's actually a shot where I think Gecko's inks are great. Yeah. I yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I love the roughness of that shot. One last thing I'm going to say before I'm, I'm totally done with this issue is mm-hmm. that page 20 features a classic moment of Kirby and Lee at cross purposes. Mm-hmm. Because Kirby clearly, clearly shows that Reed is throwing the slaver and the gangster into yes. the, the arena. Good point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Clearly. Yeah. And Lee equally clearly <laughs> says yeah. that he's freeing them. Yeah. Yeah. Farewell, gentlemen. You've, we'll free a couple of captives on our own. Farewell, gentlemen. You've served your purpose. And it is... Again, there's the thing. Kirby is going, although he doesn't get there, Kirby is less, he's, he's, I I think Kirby is not nearly as down with the idea of superheroism as, as Lee is, you know, I think he's, he's saying something. There's some, there is a little bit of the, the, all the talk of the slaves being paid off. There is a violent revolution that's happening and Reed takes two of the slavers and throws them into it. And like you said, given a choice, Lee's like, no, he's, he's saving those guys. And then they themselves are escaping. And it's a very, um, it's and everything's it, going to be fine. And ev- everything. Yes. Everything's going to be fine. Kirby is like, let's get the fuck out of here. It's yeah. chaos. It's chaos. Right. Exactly. You cannot have this shit happen without some serious fucking repercussions. And, and it would be interesting to have thing be, you know, Ben Grimm being like, we got to get, get out of here because essentially there's not going to be anything good that comes of this, you know? And, and I think – and Stan Lee is very much like, hey, you know, let's um, – how about a next issue with the lady is a witch? Hey, <laughs> that's why the lady is a witch. Yow. You know, uh, he's, he's, he's like, let's get to ground where I feel a little bit more comfortable. Let's bring back the well, frightful he, four. But he uh, – even the, the, end, the final panel of, of 93 – yeah. Ends with the thing being like, I've got it. Like, none of you interrupt me. I've got to catch up in some shut eye. Yes. Which is, I'd say, amazingly tone deaf if it wasn't for the fact that it's Stan Lee and we should expect nothing less. <laughs> right. But, but it, it is astoundingly yeah. tone deaf. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, no, it, it, and it, makes, it makes Ben Grimm look amazingly callous. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it is. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. It's it's fascinating that out of all the times where Stan has tried to wring a thoughtful message out of you know like the puppet master like tripping like, and falling, I, I have things that don't deserve a thoughtful message. Exactly. Like Stan, Stan has tried to you know wring pathos from a stone on multiple times. Yeah, and he has a storyline which actually is about something. Yeah. Albeit in a really awkward, uncomfortable manner. Yeah. And he goes up. Uh, hey, slave. Mm-hmm. I'm a slave to my stomach. You know that? You got a sandwich? <laughs> you know, it's, it's that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, absolutely. You about being a slave, don't you? How's the little lady? It's that level of like, okay, you guys. Uh, how do I get out of this? 
<laughs> yeah, he is. He is so out of his comfort zone that he's kind of like, I want to wrap this shit. And it is. There is a little bit of like, let's just have Ben like take a long nap. <laughs> Let's all let's all go to sleep. The classic universal symbol for everything ended up perfectly, and we'll never speak of it again. You know, kind of thing. So the end. The end. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we've got enough time, I hope, to talk about very quickly about the return of the frightful four uh, and and wrap Dude, up this episode. Oh man, I love this issue. Oh really? Wow. I- this issue i love this issue so much this issue for me is it has a couple of things i love a lot one uh. it has great upbeat soap opera from the the main characters i mean that splash page is fucking gorgeous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the splash page in 94 the the character acting from reed sue and johnny in particular yeah i mean look at johnny's slouch yes like, yeah, and yeah. and look, look at Sue's for that matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, that's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Admittedly, it's much better if you don't look at any of the characters' legs. <laughs> but for some, what the fuck is going on with Reed's legs in that picture? Yeah, Seriously. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if I, for that matter, what's really going on with Sue's? But, um, but the top half of that is just gorgeous, gorgeous work. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I love page two when when the the kid gets named. And and Ben is a off panel, but but being snarky until they find out that they've like the kid's middle name is is Benjamin, yes. and then he just lights up and it's wonderful and he completely chokes up and it's I love like I love that even if the rest of the issue had been the last issue I still would have liked the issue for that you, you know? know and I knew you would and I felt like such a callous creep for feeling like Ben was being such a callous creep. You know, because because it really is the idea that Ben doesn't give a shit about the kid until it ends up with his name is if you but think he about it. Shit. That's the that's the joke. That's no. the thing, that he's pretending not to because he's hurt. Uh, well, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. Yeah, that's true. Something wrong, Ben. You it, sound kind of disappointed. Being a dick because yeah. he thought that the kid was going to be named after him, and then when it's not, he's like, "No, what? Who cares about kids? Who cares about names? Huh?" Right. Right. Yeah. That's true. Um, I do love – he's like, now all of a sudden I feel like part of a family instead of a freak show, which on the one hand, like the imagery is touching. But I'm like, Stan, really polish that up because to me it is that idea of like Ben really thought everyone was freaks for the last 87 – you know, 93 issues and wasn't saying it. Like maybe that's really no, true. but I, No. It's, mm. He thought he was outside of the family. Mm. He's seeing himself as a freak. Uh, okay. He's outside of the, the Reed's slash storm, the Richard slash storm dynamic. Right. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. You are very unforgiving for little Ben Grimm in this one. Oh, I know. I was, it's, it's, you know, me, I'm especially unforgiving to little Stan Lee and pretty much everyone. So, cause of course I was incredibly, the, the, the panels of the thing being, excited in in panels three four and five are wonderful it's just everything coming out of everyone's mouth up to that point but but then you get agatha harkness which who's just who is great always Mm -hmm. but it's particularly great in this issue Mm -hmm. uh for a couple of reasons one she's so over the top 
Yes. That it reminds me of uh, Beyond Belief, the thrilling adventure hour skits. <laughs> um, and two, it really reminds me of Kirby's Demon. Yes. No, exactly. Exactly. The entire issue is everything around Agatha reminds me of Kirby's Demon, yeah. but in far more of a comedic way. Oh, God. Because the entire, entire issue is like Agatha's a witch <laughs> and she's going to fuck with the, the frightful four. Ha ha. Oh, yeah. And I'm on board. I'm on board bringing back the Frightful Four to make fun of them for an issue. Like, yeah. every Frightful Four has appeared before this, it's been a big fucking deal. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Even when it appeared, like, individually, you know, mm-hmm. here's the Zaman. All of a sudden, he's going to take three issues. Here's the Wizard. He's got Power Gloves. That's going to yeah. take two issues. And right. this is literally, here's this frail old lady who's going to scare the shit out of them. Yes. Because she's a witch. Yeah. I am on board all of this issue. <laughs> I'm, I, well, okay. It's interesting. Did you notice in the bullpen bulletins leading up to this issue uh, that in one month Stan announces that they're going to stop with their longer stories and they're going to do more self-contained done-in-ones? I didn't, but I did see people reacting to that in the letters columns. Yeah. And then the next month he more or less retracts it. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that after these long stories, part of me is like, oh, I wonder if this is very much where, you know, a little bit where Stanley's like, okay, let's bring back the Frightful Four, Jack. Let's get it a little more down to earth. Also, let's have some more single issue stories. And what you get is you definitely do get Kirby being like, again, continuing to sort of move and revisit stuff that he loves you know, that we'll later see him do. Like you said, it, this stuff is the demon as hell in the, the foreboding grotesquerie, but also, yeah, in the camp humor of it. I laughed out loud as I'm sure you, well, I don't know if you did, but page seven, panel two, where th- the thing, they're in the guest room and the painting on the wall is literally people like cultists worshiping like a burning idol or something like that. And, Everything that Stanley is having, you know, Ben Grimm crack wise about just isn't as funny as the idea that that is literally a painting on the wall. You know, um, it's it's a fun issue. It's a really fun issue. There's part of me that probably, God help me, I hate to admit it, as a continuity nerd, part of me is like, wait, Medusa's back. Are they going to explain what the fuck she was doing earlier when she was with the Frightful Four? No. But at least they, you know what I mean? Of course not, because they changed their mind. But also, this sets up the, I think, for the rest of time, Frightful Four idea that the fourth member is going to betray them. Oh, yeah. That's actually a good point. That is a good point. Yeah. Because Medusa joins up basically to fuck with them. Yeah. Yeah. come and ask her. And she's like, why would I, like, that's my sister, you guys. (laughs) Why would I team up with you against these guys? That's my sister. Right. Right. Well, but clearly they don't know. But of course, part of me is like, but why did she do it in the first place? You know what I mean? Whatever. I also, why, why, isn't it great slash weird how the wizard looks like a demented Hanna-Barbera Saturday morning cartoon character with those weird yellow and purple eyes they give him on like page three and then later? I have no idea. And throughout the issue, they give him that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I love it. Also, the talking about the purple eyes like agatha needs some eye care 
drastically <laughs> as well. Her, she's just she's got black eyes through the entire issue. She li- yeah, she does. They they actually colored her in such a way. But the sequence where she you know defeats the frightful four uh, pages fourteen through sixteen are just are really just fabulous. Are, you know? yeah, it's so great. It is really really wonderful. I I just there's something about the fact that because this is a throwaway issue. Yeah. And it is. It's a, it's a gag issue. It's a breather. Yeah. Um, it, it just makes it so much more fun. Mm-hmm. I, I loved, loved, loved having something this light and silly, intentionally silly after the previous four issues. Well, it's tough because I would be more inclined to agree. I would be more inclined to agree with you if the four issues that we had followed weren't themselves uh, kind of silly. I mean, I don't know if Kirby yeah. means them to be, but let's face it they they are pretty absurd. So they, they are they are silly, but they're uh, it's a different uh, it's a different kind of silly, I guess. Yeah. Yes, definitely it's silly. That there was so much more problematic about. Mm-hmm. That even though it was silly, I I had I really was like cringing through a lot of it. Interesting. And yeah, I so can see that. I just mm-hmm. I just enjoyed because it it was dumb, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I and and Graham, I totally agree with you. But um, I don't know. There is part of me that's really I don't feel like Kirby is the sort of guy who ever approached the material with the idea that he was above it or better than it. Um, but this, this, this issue, which is practically kissing cousins to something that Bob Haney would write, uh, ends up being to me an idea that, that Kirby is, he's done with the fantastic four, you know, like, and I don't know. I mean, there's still a few more issues to go. I don't necessarily know what's going on here, but this very much has the feel of, you know, the FF are, are barely in their own book in that sense. It's very much Agatha, you know, and, and more. Oh, it's, 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 yeah. a, it's an Agatha book. Yeah. It's an, it's an Agatha story and it's a, it's an Agatha hook. And there's, there's parts of it in which it's totally fine. And, you know, Ben is the, is the character who is, you know, he's basically the shaggy and Scooby-Doo of the story. But, um, yeah, it just, I don't know. I mean, part of me is like, ah, it's great. But part of me is also kind of like, it really feels like, um, well, like you said, it's very much the way that Kirby, you know, Kirby, when he goes on to DC and he goes on to some of the books that he creates for the fourth God, you know, for DC, not, not so much specifically new gods, but even something like Mr. Miracle, uh, has a little bit of this sort of anecdotal done in one, you know, where it's basically Kirby, like, you know, here's, here they are, they're in the spooky house in the woods, which come to think of it, they've, they had revisited a few times with Diablo here in the FF, you know, but this one in particular feels more like to me, Kirby's a little bit of the, I just don't, I don't really I care about these characters in the idea of like the first few pages that they are a family sort of, but I don't really get much of a sense that he is, this is, if this is what he's trying to keep himself amused and it's at the point where it's like, it's not even really the FF at this point. So I don't know. I'm glad that you dug it. It was a, it was a fun enough read, but I didn't, I didn't love it. 
See, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> but I, I think your, I think your reasons why are completely valid. I think, in a way, I dug it because I could divorce it from expecting it to be a Fantastic Four story. Sure. Yeah, I get it. And I yeah. think that, that you're disappointed that it's not a Fantastic Four story. Yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not sure if disappointed is necessarily the case. Like you said, as as someone who's into Kirby, seeing so much of what he goes on to do at DC right here is really fascinating. But I think the the flip side of that is it points to uh, does he feel like he has anything to say about these characters? I, you know, and that's I mean that's not necessarily fair, but you know, um, anyway, let's just say, I guess, even though it was problematic, I ended up enjoying the, the four part Torgo story more than I, I dug this. Although it was a, it was, it was perfectly fun, fine little read. With that in mind, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to suggest that we actually do a marathon for the next episode. Ooh. I'm going to suggest we do 95 through 102 and finish out the Kirby run. Okay. That sounds great. Uh, and that means also, for my entire anal retentiveness, it means we did Kirby in the first year. Yes. Right. Right. Which is great. Uh, it means we will have to uh, talk less <laughs> about each, each issue and get through more. Oh but my I god, yes. We could do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so next episode of Baxter Building, we'll find out just how done is Jack Kirby with the Fantastic Four. That's the answer, right may really kind of depress you <laughs> um, with issues 95 through 102 for people yes. who are wondering where the annuals are at this point annuals are actually a reprint all the way for the next like six or seven years that's right uh, the ff annuals are reprint all the way through i want to say annual 11 or annual 12 for those people who do have access to the gt scans like uh, graham and i FF Annual 7 has a four-page photographic yearbook of the Marvel bullpen. So uh, it doesn't reproduce as well as you would like in some cases. But if you want to see pictures of Stan Lee, Neil Adams, Saul Brodsky, both the Basima brothers, Gene Colan, Johnny Craig, Archie Goodwin, uh, Jack Kirby, Mori Kumamoto, Larry Lieber, John and Marie Severin, and... And actually a lot more, I definitely recommend uh, just just opening up the issue. All of it is, like I said, it's all reprints. It's all mostly Dr. Doom reprints, except for those four pages of photos at the back, which is kind of kind of fun. And who wouldn't want to see those characters? Indeed. Indeed. Um, it's, it's especially funny to look at Jim Steranko's photo of Jim Steranko at this age, because I, of course, assumed that he would just look like a tiny, young, I mean, you know, a young version. <laughs> Jim Steranko is already tiny. I, that he would look I, like I, just I like a, the idea that he's just smaller and he yeah. grows in size. Exactly. Like, <laughs> but uh, for those people who've had the, uh, the delight in seeing Jim Steranko in person, it's kind of funny to see uh, uh, a, a very different side of Jim Steranko uh, back when he's young. So, um, Yes. So uh, 95 through 102. Graham, do you, do you want to uh, tell everyone um, where we can, where they can find us or? Yeah, I will. Yay. Yeah, We're all over the internet. You'll find show notes to this episode featuring uh, panels for, that we've been talking about. Uh, Waitwhatpodcast.com 
where you'll also find other show notes from previous Wait What and Baxter Building episodes, as well as written posts by myself, Jeff Lester, and Matt Terrell. There's lots of stuff to read on WaitWhatPodcast.com. You should go. There's occasionally stuff to read at WaitWhatPod.tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. More often than not, it is me going through issues of Marvel Age magazine and <laughs> sharing stuff that is unexpected, to say the least. I actually have, and I've not put it on there yet, but it'll probably be on there by the time this goes live. John Byrne's plot summary of Fantastic Four 296, the 25th anniversary issue, Ooh. which is interesting because A, it's very detailed, and B, he didn't actually do that comic in the end. He really? was fired Marvel before he did the comic. So you get to see what he was planning to do and mm-hmm. how he was planning to bring the thing back into the Fantastic Four. Wow. Uh, which like, is a weirdly in-depth plot summary that he offers months ahead of the fact and months before he gets fired. Yep. We're also on Twitter at WaitBot Podcast. Jeff is on Twitter solo at LazyBastid, L-A-Z-Y-B-E-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter solo at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. What else do I need to say, Jeff? Oh, I need to talk about our Patreon because uh, yes. uh, Baxter Building is... That's right. Uh, it's something that exists thanks to the generosity of you whatnots. Um, we are at patreon.com forward slash wait podcast. And Jeff is going to give some more information about that right now. Jeff? That's that's right. We do want to thank uh, all 113 of our supporters on Patreon who make this possible. Literally, this very podcast, but also really pretty much everything our, we do. And, uh, and pass along our special thanks to the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast, as well as our special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. Um, and I think if that's it, Graham... Uh, I should say that we will see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building.